And I'm just flabbergasted. <laughs> like, that's the last thing I expected them to say. And I said, no, but I'd like to learn. And they said, come on, we'll teach you. What? So it was a total accident, and it had everything to do with fashion. <laughs> Welcome back to Gamble's Green Room. I'm your host, Mike Gamble, bringing the people you need to know with the stories you want to hear. I am joined today by a legend and pioneer of the breaking world. He's got close to 30 years in the game. He's award-winning. He is one of the founding members of Ill Abilities Dance Crew Company. He is the founder and choreographer of Luxeteria Dance Company. He's not only a crazy b-boy he's also a dope ass circus artist as well he's consulted for uh Cirque du Soleil he does Chinese pole he also does straps he's illy sick with it um if I'm not mistaken he also holds unofficially holds the world record for deadlift but hasn't done that officially uh <laughs> He's been in movies Battle of the Year and Step Up 2, and he has another special ability that some people know about, but not many people know about. We're going to get into that in a little bit. I'm talking about my boy, Jacob Crazy Cujo Lions in the house. What's up, brother? What's up, Mike? That was that was quite an introduction. I can't believe you, you uh, knew all that on the fly. <laughs> I'm not just a pretty face. i know my peoples all right it is uh yeah what i don't know though is where are you originally from la born and raised what where in la uh born in uh oxfield area the culver city grew up in pasadena uh like uh, altadena for like two years until my sister was born pasadena until i was i think 13, 12 or 13, uh, Burbank from that, that point on until last year, now Santa Clarita, near Magic Mountain. You are straight up LA County, bruh. Yep, yep. Fox, oh wait, so Fox Hills, for those that don't know, it is Fox Hill, Culver City. There is a mall there that is like, what did they say? It was like the, uh, previously it was one of, the worst malls you could ever go into because it was so hood. And now it's like the Beverly Hills of Culver City. Of the, mm-hmm. like, From what I understand, they've revamped it and made it into this like super mall. But you, didn't, you weren't born in the mall. It doesn't matter. I'm just giving a little yeah. history of that. That's what it's known for, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so until last year, you lived in Burbank. And now you live in Santa Clarita. Did you buy a house? Yeah, we bought a condo. My my fiance and I bought a condo last year. Dope, doing the adult thing. Yeah, yeah. buying a little, property. A little late. A little late. It took a little bit longer to make that happen than I wanted to. But once it kind of needed to happen, we just put everything together and made it happen very very fast. I think it was something like five weeks from the decision to buy to mm-hmm. actually buy. Oh. <sighs> How, okay, okay, you said it happened later than you wanted to. How much faster than five weeks did you want it to happen? Well, no, uh, later <laughs> in life, I think. Um, you know, like, so I I lived with my dad for a long time. Uh, part mm. of it was uh, convenience at first because, you know, well, 
poverty. <laughs> I was poor when I was a young adult. Uh, I, I, you know, my, my first job, I made four twenty five an hour. Uh, no, four, five. I made five dollars an hour, but when the minimum wage was four twenty five in the nineties, so I couldn't afford to move out. So I just stayed home. And then I quickly started to travel a lot to where I thought, well, hey, my, why don't I just stay, continue staying home because I'm not home a lot. Right. I'm, I'm why, why rent an apartment if I'm not going to be there very often? Uh, and so then as time went on, my dad started to get not well. Mm. And uh, then it transitioned into me just needing to be there to continue to take care of him uh, in whatever way that he needed. And that that was pretty minimal for a while. And then um, last year in the pandemic, it became absolutely critical. And so um, my sister and I, um, who also lived on the property, it's a, uh, our family property is a, a small multifamily. Our grandparents mm-hmm. built it, and it has a, a house in the front and three apartments in the back. But it's so it's effectively a, a fourplex. So my sister lived in one of the apartments, and my dad and I lived in the house, and we uh, each took care of him, or t- took turns taking care of him full time for the last six months of his life. And so the necessity to buy a house came from an episode where um, my my dad stopped being able to walk or stand mm-hmm. or you know get out of bed by himself, do anything by himself. Um, so, but he, she also didn't know that because of his dementia. Mm-hmm. So he kept trying to get out of bed and ending up on the floor and crying for help. But it happened in the middle of the night where, you know, we haven't gone into this yet, but uh, I'm, I'm profoundly deaf. I, I wear a hearing mm-hmm. aid and when I take it out, I'm, you know, everything is quiet, uh, silent, effectively. So when I sleep, I take this out and I don't hear anything. I, I slept through earthquakes, you know, it's like, it's, I, I sleep well. Um, so, <laughs> but uh, unfortunately, this happened, uh, I think, twice where my, um, you know, I, I would fall asleep and then my dad would, in the middle of the night, get up to go to the bathroom, but not be able to and end up lying on the floor all night long crying oh, for help no. all night long but no one knows how long because he didn't know what time it was when he got up right you know he would be crying for help until i finally woke up put my hearing aid back in heard the calls for help and be like oh crap i gotta i gotta pick him up off the floor and put him back in bed gently you know without breaking anything it was it was difficult. So, so mm. when, once that happened, I, I think for the second time, I said, "Look, you know, Sophie, my sister, you gotta, we gotta do this whole switcheroo where, um, you know, Ro, my fiance, and I have been wanting to get out and own our own place for a long time. We wanted to buy, not rent. That was part of the equation. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but my sister can hear, so I needed to get out so my sister could get in." And mm-hmm. monitor my dad all night, or at least, you know, like, because she can hear if my dad did that again, she would hear it in the middle of the night and be able to get up and take care of it. Uh, whereas I wouldn't be able to do that. Mm-hmm. So we, we, uh, so that, that, that's the necessity. So once we realized that we needed to do that, it was like, yeah, it was about five weeks from that point to where, like, I just did a quick search, found an agent, found a lender, did, did, um, uh, tours of properties uh, over two consecutive weekends, found this one that I'm in now and mm-hmm. uh, jumped on it, made the offer, got the funding, did the transfer, did all the, did all the things and then moved in. Um, yeah, it, it was very, very fast. Um, we, we started to move in, um, you know, right after we bought it. 
uh, at that five week mark, but we didn't mm-hmm. complete the move in until about five more weeks later, which was the day after my dad finally passed. Ugh. Because he, yeah, he just he just um, he wasn't well. And uh, sorry to hear about the loss. Yeah, thank you. Um, it, it was a, a little over a year ago, August um, of last year. Um, so yeah, we were just moving stuff back and forth, you know, buying furniture and. Mm-hmm. I'd spend my day here and spend my nights back in Burbank until we could finally complete the transition. It just, you know, my dad went a lot quicker than we thought he would. So um, mm-hmm. uh, the the arrangement we were trying to come up with, where my sister would move into the house and take care of my dad at night, and I would come back in the day, like that was what we had planned. That never happened, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Yeah. Okay. But um, we have we have the house. My sister now lives in. The house in Burbank, the main house. Mm. We um, we've turned that into a full-on rental property, small family business kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. All three of the units are rented. The rent covers the costs of the property with a with a small cushion for the future, for future repairs and that kind of thing. And so it's, you know, it's that part of life is going well. You know, nice. um, we're we're sad that we lost our dad, but mm. it was inevitable. He was eighty-two. He was diabetic. He had uh, multiple types of cancer. He had fractures up and down his spine. Um, oh wow! Dementia. Yeah, it was bad. Bad. So he got to you know he he only he only suffered for a few months. It was better that he suffered at home comfortably mm-hmm. than going into you know the in hospital, the emergency mm-hmm. room, surrounded by COVID patients right at the height of the pandemic when it was really bad. So and they told us that they told us you know you should probably not have him here. It's a, you know, he's more likely to catch that here and 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 die fast than he is, you know, at home. But he'll die slower, but you know, but he'll be comfortable at least. It was, yeah, it was a kind of a no-win situation, but we did the best we could. Yeah, and you're you actually able to maintain the property, like the family property, the family plot. Uh, yeah. You said your grandparents built it. Yeah, in the night. 1954 or six, I always get mixed up. But yeah, they built it in the 50s. They intended it to be um, both the family and a rental property. They, they built the apartments as well as the main house. We are mm-hmm. the only family that's ever owned that property. And hopefully we will continue to be the only family that ever owns it for many more generations. Nice. Because you're now third generation of owning. Effectively. Yeah. My sister's yeah. kids were too, and they're both adults. So, you know, they don't own it, but it is now four generations deep. The people of our family living in that property. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's, a, I don't want to say that's an interesting way to start, but that was a deep way to, but that was a, that was an intro <laughs> to our conversation. That was, uh, I didn't, I did not know that your dad passed and that he had as many complications. But, uh, yeah. As you said, it is, I don't want to say it's for the better, but as you said, he suffered minimal, uh, shortly. I want to say minimally for yeah, a short amount yeah, of time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, he suffered a lot, but um, we made him as comfortable as he could. He wasn't, right. he wasn't tended to by, by strangers and lab coats and bright lights and all mm. that unfamiliar environment. He was tended to at home. He did have difficulty recognizing his own home. Yeah, he, he kept saying, "I want to go home. I want to go home." It, 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 it was tough, you know. Dementia is not a fun thing for any mm-hmm. family to have to deal with, but it is quite common, unfortunately. Yeah.
so you brought up I was going to try and get to it later, but it comes up and it comes up that your, as I call it, your special ability, because it doesn't hinder you, especially as a breaker, as I saw in Malmo a couple of weeks ago, where you still don't believe what I tell you. Oh. And I was there. <laughs> we'll get into that in a little bit as well. But you were born completely deaf in your right ear. Yeah. And are you deaf in both ears or just one? Uh, profoundly hard of hearing in my left ear. Profound. So if you hear it to profound, which depends, which refers to uh, states, uh, levels of deafness, but also re- regarding specific frequencies. So mm-hmm. meter range frequencies, I can hear kind of okay. High frequencies, I cannot hear at all. Low frequencies, I can't hear at all, like like past a certain point. Um, mm-hmm. It's interesting. So high, um, high and low frequencies actually hurt. Like they're very painful for me. Uh, with the hearing aid, and that's just, um, a consequence of the technology where it amplifies certain sounds a bit too much and other sounds not enough to where. And mm-hmm. they can they can toggle that now. Like the technology has advanced that far where they can they can really mess with that and make it uh, as natural as possible. But um, um, typically, once it gets past a certain height of frequency or depth of frequency, I can't hear it at all, even though it's obvious to everyone else. Uh, all right, let's let's. Let's just do this now. So, a uh, couple in November of 2021, uh, there's a huge dance festival in uh, Malmo, Sweden, called Hip Hop Weekend. Uh, it is a it is one of the largest dance competitions in the Nordics, uh, with battles in hip hop, breaking, locking, and pop. Ah, uh, nope, hip hop breaking, locking, and house. There wasn't popping this year. I don't recall. And Cujo was one of the judges. And typically, for those that don't know, at these uh, battle events, uh, there comes a point where the judges do a show, to, uh, a show, to, a solo to showcase uh, their specialty. Uh, there's Cujo was the uh, specialty judge for breaking. Uh, then there's one for all the individual stuff as well. So as uh, as him, A Train, and who is the third judge? I forget her name. Yoriski uh, and um, AT were the, the other two. Yes, yes. <laughs> and uh, the song is pumping, everybody's hype. And Cujo's the third one to go. Actually, you tell this story because I want to tell the back end of. <laughs> okay. So um, when I do these showcases, or, or I'm in a battle, or I'm during a, a you know a regular show, I, I always have problems hearing the music, and it's harder in an improvisational situation than it is in a choreographed situation. When mm-hmm. in a theater show, for example, you know the music already. You've rehearsed it. You've done a tech mm-hmm. rehearsal. You know what the sound levels are going to be. You know, uh, I, I I should say I do. Uh, so it's easier for me to hear the music because I, I I know what the music is. It's very well. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we're all very well prepared, and. Um, in an improvisational situation, like literally every hip hop event, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and, uh, we never know what the DJ is going to play. Pretty much, you know. I mean, right. like there are situations where a judge and can request a song from the DJ for that judge solo that we're about to do, uh, or solo, as you said. <laughs> um, but um, uh, I didn't have that conversation with the DJ. I kind of like to leave it up in the air because it's kind of fun. Um, it. it 
kind of fun to see what uh, what will happen, uh, whether I'm here or not. <laughs> in more but ways I than have, one. <laughs> that, right? So like, like in an improvisational situation where I don't know the music and I can't hear the music, I rely on uh, a few things. One is visual cues. I look for people clapping mm-hmm. their hands to the beat or bopping their heads, moving their bodies, whatever. But nobody was doing that in that moment. And I, I'm not sure why, maybe because the beat was not hard enough for anyone to feel like they could. So another, another thing I do is, you know, if I can hear something, a, a teensy little part of the song that I've heard a million times, then I instantly know the song by heart and I know what part of the song it is and know what comes next. And I mm-hmm. can kind of time my movements to match what I know is coming, even if I can't actually hear it in the moment. So that that muscle memory is there from hearing singing songs over and over. That's becoming a lot more of a problem now with copyrighted music becoming kind of taboo at most events due to, you know, filming issues and YouTube live streams and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, the third thing I do is give up because I can't do anything. <laughs> and I just, you know. I don't mean to laugh, but it just sounds like, you know what? Fuck it. It's. That's literally I'm just going what happens. It. That's literally what happens. That's what happened that day where I couldn't hear anything. And I just said, okay, here we go. Um, here we go again, because I've done this many times, um, where I, I don't hear anything. I just go either at the, the pace that I want to go uh, or, or the rhythm that's in my head. I put a rhythm in my head or I you know, mm-hmm. imagine, okay, I think this is what the rhythm is. I'm going to go to that and just kind of cross my fingers and hope for the best. And I don't know if I hit a single beat until someone tells me after or I watch the video. And in this, in this case, you showed me the video and I still couldn't hear. <laughs> That I could still couldn't tell if I was hitting any beats, but you told me I did, so I guess I did. And and but the funny thing is, he said he waits until someone sh- shows him the video or tells him that he hits the beat. I showed him the video and told him that he's hitting the beats, and he still doesn't <laughs> believe me. No, like, so, it's such a such a high pitched snare, like you told me, with yeah, a snare and not right. a bass drum or, or, or any of the other you know beats that that would be on the two and the four, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Because it was a snare, I can't hear that. It's too yeah. high pitched. The frequency, so the frequency is just not yeah. one of those sounds that, unless it's in a very controlled environment, like like I'm sitting at home and listening to a jazz record or something, then I can hear it because I can't hear anything else except that. But in the, the middle of an event, DJ plays a song with a lot of snare. Right, and this and this song also didn't have that usual either bass drum or bass guitar kick line to it. It was a lot of horns which also makes it harder for you to pick up the uh, pitch on because it's so up there. So Yeah, and the horns were playing the elongated notes, right? Yeah. Where yeah. Maybe there were like, like eight counts per note or something like that, where they weren't staccato horns, like a lot, no. of, a lot of breakbeats. So it's nothing, literally nothing for me to go on as far as what I'm capable of hearing in the moment. So uh, if you if you've been listening, tuning in to this or if, uh, if you've been following the Instagram account, you know that usually uh, I I post a snippet of some of the work uh, that my guests have done. I am specifically choosing this video to post because you are not going to believe when you see it that he is not listening to the music, even when he hits like uh not even a power move, but like a stall or like uh, what you would think would be a hit in the music. He's hitting it and he can't hear it. And we're all going crazy for it. And then people don't realize that he doesn't hear the music, but it's that on point. It is 
bananas, which is why I say this is his special ability because throughout his career as a breaker, that has been his thing that a lot of times we talk about connecting to the music. Uh, Cujo, as he said, there's one of three things that happens. He either connects to how people are reacting to the music and hopefully that they're on beat <laughs> to uh, what was this? What was this? Uh, you look for people. Uh, you try. You try and uh, uh, one of the, one of the sounds that you can connect to and recognize. And and then the third one is loosey goosey. It all ha- like we just go for it, yeah. dude. That is absolutely amazing to have your artistry. Uh, you're you're a true freestyler. Like it's that <laughs> improvisational skills max level level up if he can for those of y'all that are uh able to hear music and sounds and connect to it that way and you say i can't hear it no not anymore did you need (laughs) to do your work to understand how to process music because if this dude can do it when you see this and you know and if you know me you know i don't hype shit up just to hype shit up it has to literally impress me (laughs) For me to talk about it some way when you see this video you will understand what i'm talking about and i know you hate me talking about it this much because you sort of <laughs> get uncomfortable with it. <laughs> so, yeah thank you for saying all that uh, but you know like I, I i never became a musician but my father was a musician uh he actually um when, when i was shortly after i was born and he found out that i that i was uh, partially deaf, um mm-hmm. uh he cried because he wanted me to be a musician too oh. i realized that wouldn't be possible but i never became a musician but i did study music mm, uh, okay. uh, jazz specifically and i studied it very intimately um mm-hmm. i tried to play alto sax briefly uh but i felt like it was like okay do i choose it was early enough in my b-boy career to where i was like i felt like i got to choose one or the other did not realizing i could have you know potentially done both mm-hmm. if i been better at allocating time but um uh, at that time, I thought, well, in my final justification was that I, I felt like I could make more of an impact as a b-boy than I could as a saxophone player. And that you have. Yeah, exactly. Because the, at the, I mean, in the mid-90s, the b-boy community worldwide was so small that it, mm. it kind of wasn't that hard to make an impact, provided you were cool enough, did something that stood out enough, original enough, skilled enough, whereas in jazz, good luck. you know. It's, it's a, right. uh, over a hundred year old art form. Well, in the nineties, maybe not quite a hundred, but uh, but you know what I mean. Like roughly one century mm-hmm. already. Like they've already been through all these phases within um, the the development and evolution of the music to where now it's just kind of flatlined and it's just it's not. There's nothing revolutionary in jazz, at mm-hmm. least not to my knowledge. I haven't followed it lately, but you know. I, at that time, there was definitely nothing revolutionary. There was still kind of riding that um, super experimental wave of the 60s, but like Ornette Coleman and people like that, all the way mm-hmm. up in the 90s. And, and uh, you know, I took a, a jazz theory, jazz history class, one of those. Uh, and my teacher was, you know, a, 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 I think he was also an alto sax player for a group that was modeled on that type of free jazz um uh movement and it just it, it was like you either you either do that or you you uh you play in one of the old styles or you're pop like kennedy or you mm-hmm. like 
play at these tiny little clubs where people like free jazz. And so it just, just felt like there wasn't anything to do, anything to contribute. Uh, but it was still a very valuable in terms of education, understanding music, understanding how hip hop and breaking could go through similar phases and were in many ways going through similar phases. You know, of course it, it has its own um, very different evolution and it's not mm-hmm. done evolving by any means, but it, it hasn't had that same sort of, a same sort of trajectory that, that jazz has had. Uh, but I did see myself at one point as being like the free jazz b-boy in a way. You right. know, like I was super experimental. Uh, I I I had the advantage, quote unquote, of not being able to hear music, so that allowed me to go off beat uh, intentionally mm. or otherwise, which is a lot of what free jazz is about. Is kind of, you know, like for people that don't know and think that there's always rhythm all the time in jazz music, just because. No, not really. Um, when you get into into when you get deep into the woods of free jazz, it's like. It's like postmodern art, postmodern dance, you know, mm-hmm. uh, contemporary dance where they just go off into their own little worlds. And like if you have, say, you've got a quartet, you've got, you know, uh, a trumpet player, a sax player, uh, a bassist and a, and a drummer, they could all be playing on their own time signature, at their own rhythm, at their own tempo uh, and soloing at the same time instead mm-hmm. of doing the traditional type of jazz where there's a chorus with an intro, there's a solo and then another solo and then another solo then a chorus again and then an outro like there's you know pretty strong chord structure um and uh, and format to most jazz most pieces of jazz music whether they're three minutes or three minutes uh but with free jazz they pretty much dispensed with all of that just because and mm-hmm. a lot of modern dance has been that way over the last hundred or so years as well and i i felt that i was kind of doing the same sort of thing in breaking uh mm-hmm. in the late 90s and especially early 2000s super super experimental and it was the whole point to just give kind of a middle finger to all of the uh presumptions about breaking and about hip-hop for a time not to Mm -hmm. stay there show that it could be done just to pose the question basically i mean people talk about it and think about it consider it um and uh and be controversial but because it was fun but also because it's artistically interesting you know, yeah. and I, that was 20 years ago, so things are very different now. So how, so you've mentioned that uh, your OutSax was uh, during the same time as your breaking development. How did you get into breaking? Uh, that was, if we back it up a little bit, um, I, so I, I said I grew up in Pasadena, so um mm-hmm. Pasadena has hood parts and not so hood parts. And I grew up in the more hood part. And um, kind of, you know, part of it was media, you know, because media tends to portray bad things as cool, you know? Right. So, so for, if, unfortunately or otherwise, you know, you see a lot of, like in the, in the 80s and 90s, you saw a lot of um, films and television shows where the, the the gangsters who are often black or Latino are are romanticized, right? Mm-hmm. Now obviously we have the mafia movies where it's the Italians and you know many other things. Scarface where right. there's the you know the, the Hispanic people there in, in the Hispanic characters in that film and many, many others. But like, you know, it was like 
uh, I'm going to get you, sucker. You know, remember that? Right. Song? Super, mm-hmm. super trendy. Like Keen and Ivory Wayans, one of the Wayans brothers' first movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And like, I, I watched In Living Color and like, you know, like I, I was, I began to, I'm like 12 years old at this point, you know, I'm romanticizing mm-hmm. these ideas that this is what's cool. You know, uh, for better or worse, there were obviously very mm-hmm. positive things to associate with their coolness, quote unquote, of um, of black culture, hood culture, minority culture. You know, uh, overall, you know, obviously more than one culture there, um, but also a lot of very bad things. You know, the, the gang element, the violence element, the drugs. Mm-hmm. And, and so I became very attracted to that just because you know I'm an adolescent kid wanting to do what people have decided is cool, but adolescents right. have decided is cool specifically people my age and a little bit older than me right because i want to be i want to be cool too i'm tired of being this mm-hmm. nerdy kid which i was and also this kid that people literally thought was retarded because of my my hearing disability mm-hmm. my speech impediments that came with that they were a lot worse when i was a kid i had a lot of speech therapy i had to correct a stutter uh, you know things like that were, were very difficult uh but i was nerdy too you know i won spelling bees and math competitions when i was in elementary school and i I wanted to get away from that perception of, uh, of myself, whether it's my, my, my own perception of myself or other perception of me and mm-hmm. get more into, you know, just being somebody, whatever that meant. And as an adolescent, I didn't know what that meant. I just knew that I didn't want to be what I thought my parents wanted me to be. So I mm. rebelled at all adolescents do and did the thing that they didn't want me to do. And that was, you yeah. know, um, Getting into hip hop music, listening to uh, cassette tapes that specifically had that explicit content sticker on it. You remember that? You know. <laughs> uh, yep, right? that started in the nineties. Yeah, yeah, and I and I would buy those and and or, or steal them, whatever, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> without my permission, you know. And and I would have like you know, I had digital underground sex packets. That was like my my tape that I played the hell out of that tape, you know. And and, and similar and similar things. I wanted to be down whatever that meant you didn't really know Mm. what that meant i just wanted to be that because that was the cool thing so i was very attracted to that and then in the middle of all this this kid trying to find his identity i get sent to this private school because uh you know i graduate middle school in the hood and where where kids get jumped every day and and i got bullied a lot and then i'm going to go to my my trajectory is i'm going to go to the hood public high school and my parents say, no, no way. That's that's not okay. We're not going to let you go there because mm. we don't know what, what can happen, but it probably is not going to be good. So they put me in this Catholic all-boys school. And it was weird um, because <laughs> everyone was rich and I was poor. Um, at this time, you know, like my family has always been very liberal and everyone at the school was very conservative. And mm. it was just weird, you know. And again, I'm, you know, I'm, I, I was... 14 or whatever i didn't really have like a political party but i thought of myself as very left-leaning because that's mm-hmm. what my parents were um but everyone at the school was very much the opposite so it was weird we got into arguments and fights and this and that and and uh and then uh bullying started happening there too in a not so great way and eventually it got kind of to the point where i had had enough and uh i said uh you know like there's a six foot tall football player that kept picking on me for whatever reason. I don't know why that specific guy targeted this specific guy, but that's what happened. Um, and, you know, six feet, I'm five, four. Right. Um, and, and I, 
I was very, very skinny as a kid, um, all the way. Like, like I was one twenty five in high school. I weighed one twenty five, which you know, <laughs> for the yeah for, five, for, four. For, for the Europeans that's like 56, 57 kilos. Yep. Yeah, about fifty seven kilos. Yeah, it's very, very small, right? Five four. That's I don't even know what I, I don't know my centimeters. I know my kilos. Much better. That's um, like one sixty. <laughs> It's not a lot, <laughs> yeah. but you know, very big dude. What he and, and it was, was messing with me, and so one day uh, I said, "I'm not going to let him mess with me anymore." And so I had this like big Georgetown jacket because again, that's what the, the cool kids wore. But, yeah. um, was it a starter uh, and, jacket? Yeah, it was a starter jacket. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I, I I knew you would know, um, and uh, and I it had a little insert inside pocket and i stuck a 10 inch book knife into that pocket and i said if this guy you, 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 stop yeah. stop stop you you put yeah, a what in there butcher knife 10 inch butcher knife a 10 inch butcher yeah oh. now i get to school and same dude grabs me by my jacket my georgetown jacket and lifts me up off the ground and i look down at him because i'm above his head and i just smile and i don't do anything but just having that possibility that potential to do some damage to this person was satisfaction enough for me uh, and i didn't do anything but that day my uh my dad and i used to go to the gym together uh-huh. um and we were we went to the gym that day he picked me up from school and we went and we did a little workout you know uh, i've been working out off and on since i was you know um, a very young teenager and um thanks to my dad um and when we finished the workout my dad reached into the locker and grabbed my jacket and the knife fell out. And so that's when the snowball started to where he's like, you know, what the hell is this? And I didn't have an answer. I didn't want to tell him. Um, mm-hmm. uh, he, uh, he called the police. They said, we're not going to do anything because he didn't do anything. He called the school and they said, okay, well, he's not coming back here. As I was effectively expelled, maybe not formally, but effectively, you know, kicked out of that school. And um, then I was sent to what is called an institution. It's not like placement or a foster home. It's just a, uh, it's definitely not juvenile hall, but it's kind of similar to all those where you're just stuck in a building with counselors for as long as they decide that you need to be there up to three months. So I was there for one month. And um, and when I got out, they sent me to a public school in Burbank. And uh, they wanted me to be, uh, and I don't know the term for it, it's not exactly homeschool, but basically I would go in once a week and then I would just do my own assignments at home, my own homework at home and projects and then turn them in the following week. But I'd only be at, on campus for like an hour a week. And, uh, and that was for the spring semester of my sophomore year, 10th grade. And I was uh, 15 years old, um, 1992. And uh, um, on one of these forays into this new school, well, back, backing up a little bit, when I was in the institution, I, you know, some of the magazines they had there, were, were hip-hop magazines. Um, I don't remember the name of the one that I saw. It wasn't Ebony, it wasn't Jet, it was something else, you know. But it, it, both aren't hip-hop magazines per se, but it was like a, specifically a hip-hop magazine that was popular at the time. Um, and 
somewhere in the back, like on the back cover or, or near the end of the magazine, there was an advertisement for cross colors clothing. And yeah. I thought, oh, this, this looks really cool. Like I'd, I'd like to, you know, like if I get to wear my own clothes when I go to this new school and get out of here, not a school uniform like a private school, I'd like to wear mm-hmm. these. You know, so my dad took me to to uh, Mervin's or whatever. Uh, I don't remember the Mervin's. There was a store, Mervin's. Yeah, yeah, and um, um, and we got we got a few outfits. You know, two or three outfits, and and I wore those to to school. So one day, not my first day, but one of the days I was at this new school once a week, I'm walking towards the exit down the hall, and I see another group of kids, maybe eight or 10 of them all wearing the same clothes, cross colors. They're walking towards me. They're all looking at me. It's too late. I can't turn away. There's nowhere else to go because it's just the hallway. But I see them all walking towards me and looking at me. And so you, you already know what I'm thinking. You know, yeah, like, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking like, the same thing. My heart's racing right now. <laughs> the same, they're all wearing the same clothes. I'm about to get hit up and jumped in the hallway, right? Um, and so that's not what happens. They walk up to me and they say, hey, did you dance? And I'm just flabbergasted. <laughs> like that's the last thing I expected them to say. And I said, "No, but I'd like to learn." And they said, "Come on, we'll teach you." What? So it was a total accident, and it had everything to do with fashion. <laughs> okay, there there are so many. Like I'm sitting here with my heart racing for each one of these segments of the story you're telling me about, but then also my blood is boiling. Because it's the quote unquote classic, the bullied student is the one that gets the quote unquote punishment mm-hmm. because yeah. you, and then also you're trying, ha, ha I'm so frustrated. <laughs> I can only imagine what it was like for you as a, as a teenager as well. But it's, you brought the knife to school to defend yourself as none of the teachers were ever doing anything about you being bullied. Luckily, you didn't do anything with the knife, but as you said, just knowing you had that power over was enough for you. So thankfully that, that happened that way as well. Unfortunately, your dad sees it. And as this, as he calls the school, they only react to you. And even though you're not comfortable with saying why it happened, they have like, as an adult now, I always go, okay, but what's the reason behind that action, a, a student or a child or a youth, a person doesn't just lash out that way for no reason. There is an underlying cause of this. But what did they do? They just expelled you without ever like, and I'm pretty sure football dude is like, hey, I'm the captain. Ha ha. I got that little barker out of here. Blah, blah, blah. A little dickhead. Sorry. I got whatever. But so then. Uh, it's, it's sort of serendipitous as the universe is like you're at this uh, institution. It might have been Word Up magazine that you were reading. That was one uh, of them. Maybe. Uh, but you happen to see this clothing brand that attracts your eye. It's, you, it's, it's not even about like, yeah, it's the cool thing, but it's cool from this segment that you're not even in this area. So you're like, I want to wear this. And your dad's like, okay, cool. So you wear it. And then as you say, like you get to school and I, I'm pretty sure everybody listening thought the same thing. So I'm like, oh, bro, he's about to get jumped. They're about to take his clothes, his sneakers. Like he's about to be thrown in the locker. Here we go with another bullying. And they're just like straight out of uh, like a crazy high school Disney movie. 
hey, bro, you want to dance? And you're like, I want to learn. Sure. And then and then that's where. <laughs> so yeah. it's 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 frustrating for me to hear again how the system fails someone that you had to be the one that got, quote unquote, homeschooled. Like you went to campus for an hour a day and then had to do your work there because also you were already treated differently because you were uh, because of because of your deafness. And then people thinking that you couldn't process, but it's already something that they're not looking into. There's just so many different levels of how this could have gone so much more wrong. And of course, we have hindsight now like, oh, dude, that's amazing. It happened this way. But we as humans have to understand that we don't know someone else's story. And we're so quick, especially in uh, positions of power, to then lash out at the person that's reacting to the situation around them versus actually going into, okay, what, what is the actual underlying issue here? What is the problem? Why did you get that? Why did you have to go that far? Was it something at home? Is it something personal? Is it a bullying thing? Okay, maybe you don't want to tell me who's bullying you, but let me find out what's happening to you so I can understand versus, oh, he's expelled. Yeah. That's just, that's just so, oh, to me. I, yeah. I, I can't even put it to words. It's just, oh. Yeah. Because so many people default to that so quickly. But again, mm-hmm. I'm totally happy that it worked out this way for you. Because you've now built up a true legacy of your artistry based on all of these bad things happening, leading up to what potentially could have been a bad thing, but leading up to being one of the best things that could have happened to you, where these, where this gang of kids, (laughs) so to speak, is just inviting you to dance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, One one thing that was interesting about about these kids was that while it was you know, all happy, happy, joy, joy at first, it quickly mm-hmm. became not that because they taught me, but they didn't teach me in a way. So they, they showed me a few steps and then it kind of stopped and it was like, okay, I guess I got to just figure this out by what, watching, I guess. And so I would mm-hmm. look at what other people were doing and then try to do that and then get yelled at. And then get because you were biting. But then get beat up because Back then, every battle ended in a fight. Every single one. (laughs) (laughs) Every battle ended in a fight. It was inevitable. Uh, And it happened every week at school uh, during lunch break. (laughs) It was was nuts. Well, well, technically, uh, I just mentioned the word, because technically, without knowing you were doing it by trying to learn, you were biting. You were copying on the people just which is sacrilegious in hip hop and in breaking culture. Yeah, exactly. But, and I learned that the hard way very quickly, but no one told me that. They just showed me the hard way. (laughs) And I learned very fast that originality is the most important thing. Mm. So, ergo, my styles began to develop the way that I did. And so I narrowed my focus to specific things that I thought I could do well that no one else could do better or that I could do in a unique way that no one else would do. And Mm. that escalated rapidly. It it turned out that I was good at standing on my head. I didn't know that at strong arms, although at first I did not, you know, the very first time I tried to do uh, turtles, I just fell right over, you know, it felt impossibly hard. And then it became 
uh, rather quickly, like my signature thing. Um, and I became better at it than almost everyone else on the planet. Um, became really good at standing on my hands and doing what I call footless footwork, trying to dance mm-hmm. in the air while standing on my hands in various ways. Um, but avoiding certain positions that were typical of breaking, like a stat, a baby freeze mm-hmm. or a turtle stat, or an air mm-hmm. baby with the knee on the elbow, but trying to just keep my knees off my elbows, my hips off my elbows, and do very, not just handstands, but odd, oblique angled positions, and then dancing in those positions and shifting from one to the other and that kind of thing. So I call that footless footwork. I did what we call walks, which are derivative of turtles, where you straighten your arms and uh, continue to walk in a big circle. And um, Mm -hmm. the whole rabbit hole of history there that's unique to LA um, and then flips and I use quotes specifically because I never had strong legs I did teach myself how to do a backflip in school I don't have a gymnastics background which some people do assume based on watching the way that I dance you know by mm-hmm. doing planches and half dance or whatnot but no I have no gymnastic background um, I, I learned how to flip on the grass uh, at high school and um, pretty quickly you know landed on my head a few times but like I do a full backflip, a half twist, a full twist, a self-taught, all of those things. But beyond that, like I've never had hops, you know, I can't touch a basketball rim. I don't have big, strong legs to where I can mm-hmm. do some of the things that a lot of other b-boys could do. And those skinny legs that I have allowed me to do all the things on my hands, moving my legs around the way that I did. Um, mm-hmm. So my flips quickly became, like, like I, I thought I was going to focus on walks and flips. That was like my, my thing in uh, 94 right that, that, that mm-hmm. that's what i'm going to focus on um but those flips eventually became two things two other kinds of air movements one was uh, air tracks or air flares air twists yeah. whatever um and um my my crew and i became really instrumental in picking up where the europeans left off based on videos that we saw uh, mm-hmm. uh, in 1995, we, we said, okay, that's the future. We're going to learn that and we're going to learn everything we can with that before everybody else did, uh, does. And that's what we did. We learned every combination, every variation, uh, and invented many that had never been done before, before anyone else could do them. And so then we all became pioneers in that regard. Uh, two questions. One, is your crew that you're talking about now composed of these uh cross colors dudes that picked you up or they no 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 they stopped after high school um at at the end of high school they pretty much all stopped and i almost did too because i had uh you know i i actually started going to college in pasadena i went all the way back to pasadena on the bus every day to pasadena city college and um one day in the paper the local pasadena paper i saw a picture of a b-boy and I, I bought the paper and it and it um had a story about th- these guys that were training people for free at the local um boys club mm-hmm. and uh it had the address of it and everything and it was kind of on my way home on the bus so i just took the bus there and went and, uh, and the reason i wanted to go is because i recognized them i actually battled these same kids at a youth club where you know you could go if you're under 18 we had yeah. a few of those in la in the 90s mm-hmm. and uh and, and i went and i battled these kids you know and i recognized them so i went to go and meet them because i hadn't seen them ever since and now this is you know this is you know one or two years later um i'm 18 yeah i, I just turned 18 um 
and I was a freshman in college. And uh, and I went, and they remembered me, and, and we all just started hanging out again. I didn't join their crew. Uh, th- these guys were called 101. That crew has since uh, uh, become defunct. But it was an important part of L.A. history in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, members of that crew went on to uh, uh, some quit. Some went to another crew called Abstract Flavor that my crew, which was called Soul Control, by the way, we ended up battling mm-hmm. them quite a bit. We were like arch rivals in L.A. Uh, in the 90s. Uh, and then from Abstract Flavor, when that when that uh, fell apart, people went to Rock Forge, Renegades, Dow Elements, L.A. Breakers. Like, they scattered in all these uh uh, really cool places. All these really cool crew became very influential, uh, uh, each each on their own. Um, but these were these were good kids, good guys. And um, uh, one of them was named Ace, and he was the teacher of the crew. And he became a good friend and mentor of mine. He specifically mm-hmm. helped me with the walks that I was already doing, and helped me refine my technique in the tradition in the LA tradition that I that I referred to briefly. Uh, mm-hmm. Walk in a circle. You've seen how I do this, and I travel in a circle when I walk on my hands. Yeah. Whereas most people just kind of, kind of hop in place. You know, it's very rapid. Right. Rapid fire with the hands, and they stay right where they are. But I travel in a circle. But that's an LA mm-hmm. technique that I learned from Ace. And uh, so Ace and I became good friends. And um, when one on one fell apart, Ace formed Master Movements. Asked me to join. I said no because I've got my high school crew, not the crew that that uh, taught me how to dance, but, uh, another yeah. crew that kind of developed as a response to that crew. Complicated and pointless. But, um, <laughs> but uh, high school crew that I was a part of was called Floor Control. And uh, and I said, you know, I don't want to join Master Movements because you guys are already known in LA, well-known, and I don't want to have that notoriety handed to me. I want to earn it. So I want to mm. take this high school crew of mine and make something out of nothing. I want to turn it into something, but from nothing. Because no one knows who we are. I don't have any people. I just want to figure out how, how to turn this into something from scratch. So Floor Control brought in a few members, um, quite a few members at first, but they, it, they were all casual. They were all just for the fat because there were, like in the San Fernando Valley of LA, there were a lot of Filipino kids that were breaking just because mm-hmm. it was cool at the time. And that was for about a year. And then gangbanging became... The next thing for like, the Filipino kids, I had a lot of Filipino gangster friends in uh, uh, around the end of high school, beginning of college, and then from there, the the ones that didn't get shot while gangbanging then went into racing, street racing, and so that was kind of the trajectory of like the Asian subculture uh, mm-hmm. of hip hop. Um, and uh, you know, I did have a friend that actually shot somebody. Actually, went to prison, and yeah, like someone I went to high school with. So there was a lot of other things that went on at this time but um i wanted to take floor control and turn it into something so floor control didn't last very long on its own because we had too many people that just kind of came in and out and only really a couple that uh, that were like solid and that ended up being me and a guy named carlos or inferno because of his red hair mexican mm-hmm. guy but with bright red hair and uh we met another crew that we actually wanted to battle Cult all swift. We started to target other crews to try to make a name for ourselves. One was Goose Troop, one was Soul Swift. We could have targeted a bunch of others, right? But those were the two that we had our sights on, and we said, let's go for Soul Swift first. Mm-hmm. And um, Soul Swift got wind of it because there was a, a Filipino girl that would hang out with all of us who also hung out with Soul Swift. And when mm. she heard us saying we were going to call them out at the next some event, you know, like a party for, for the youth. 
um, she went and told them. I gave them my number. <laughs> so I get a call from a guy named Barmack, who is a member of Soul Swift, who I've never talked to, never heard of. Uh, I'd seen him, and he's like, hey, uh, uh, I heard you want to battle us. <laughs> I'm like, how did you get my number? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, it was weird. And so we ended up having a nice conversation because we had seen them, they had seen us, and we actually had a mutual admiration for each other which is why we wanted to battle them, you know, with yes. respect. And so they said, you know, like, we like you guys. Why don't you just come and practice with us? And then, just, you know, if you don't want to battle us, then we'll figure it out. So we went to this place in North Hollywood where another uh, now defunct crew called Twilight 22 liked to practice. And um, it was their home spot and so would go. And then we started going. We went once, we headed off, and we started going all the time. We became close friends. We had similar approaches to the dance primarily in terms of originality and difficulty mm -hmm. together. Not just being original with simple little hand movements, arm movements, you know, things like that, but really like true challenging originality. Like do something that's never been done before, originality, which involves a lot of difficulty and skill mm -hmm. and, and coordination. And so we, we hit it off very well and they were the ones that showed us these videos of the europeans doing airflows and whatnot um we, we traded videos that was the thing back in the day we would trade vhs tapes so they wanted to trade like a battle of the year or whatever for our for my b-boy summit 2 video they didn't have that mm -hmm. <laughs> rock city battled um, uh, air force and uh, the guys from japan and um it was, it was pretty cool. And so we ended up hanging out every weekend, practicing every weekend. And and uh, and so and we put the crews together, uh, Soul Swift, Floor Control, Soul Control. Mm -hmm. uh, and there were four founding members. So again, Inferno and I, Barry Mack and his brother, Bob Ack. We were the four mm -hmm. founding members. Um, none of the other three dance anymore. Carlos is uh, a family man. Um, he wasn't in construction. I think now he's a stay-at-home dad. Uh, his wife is a nurse and will not let him leave the house because yeah. she's seen what COVID does, you know, yeah. uh, in real time. So she's, you know, out of, out of fear for, for her family. She won't let any of them leave the house. <laughs> it's kind of, it was the last time I spoke with him, it was a little bit sad because he was dying to get out and do something. Yeah. Uh, um, Babak is a freelance programmer, travels the world and programs websites from his laptop. I think he finally is settling down in Silicon Valley. Um, very successful. And Barmac, oh my God, Barmac uh, became a um, uh, a creative executive for Nike and moved oh. up to Portland to work yeah. at a very high level for Nike. Uh, it's after Siphon. Barmac founded Siphon, if you remember that company, the clothing yep. brand in mid-2000s. Of course I remember Siphon. I wore the yeah. t-shirt. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. So Barmac is the founder. Uh, along with uh, Ewok from Scum Methods, who was the yep. designer of a lot of it. Mike was the brain, the businessman behind mm -hmm. it. Um, and uh, after that went bankrupt and fell apart, Barmack moved to Portland to work for Nike as a creative executive for about 10 years. And then he just left this year to move to Florida to be an even higher level creative executive for Disney. So that's kind of <laughs> cool. Yeah. So, you know, uh, we have a lot of very successful people in our in our crew. Um, those are just the four founders. We've got, you know, a bunch of other guys like mm. Charles and Sean, Mega Man, uh, who are also very successful in their business up in uh, uh, Fresno and Fremont, respectively. Um, 
But, uh, you know, we, we wanted to make something out of nothing. And boy, did we make something because we had this, uh, this vision for what breaking could be with a different approach from what everyone mm-hmm. else was doing, focusing specifically on creativity, originality, difficulty, kind of all combined, all wrapped into one, to do something that had never been done before, do a, a variety of things that had never been done before. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we took that and we battled and we, we performed and we traveled. And uh, we didn't teach too much at first, but, you know, we did a lot of very significant things with mm-hmm. our movements that uh, many, many people around the world, b-boys and b-girls around the world saw and began to admire and be influenced by. So what can you tell, can you tell me and the listeners one or two because you said uh, your crew wanted to have originality with difficulty and take breaking to another level. Can you tell me one or two moves that you originated that are, are, are they signatures for you or, you know what I mean? Like, is there something yeah. that you do specifically that's to you that you created during this time or something oh, yeah. that you created that is now used in the battle scene or breaking scene? Yeah, there's a there's a number. Um, uh, if we talk about so some of the others, if we talk about air flares specifically, mm-hmm. uh, one is we came up with that term air flare because we saw people doing what we thought were called air tracks. That's what we used to call them uh, in mm-hmm. LA in the nineties, um, where you twist on one axis, right, at an angle. Mm-hmm. When when I say one axis, I say uh, it's similar to a ninety, which is on a vertical. Angle, right. but it's still one axis, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Or a head spin or a back spin. They're on one axis, yeah. right? But a windmill is not one axis, it's two axes because you're spinning this right. way and you're spinning this way on both mm-hmm. a vertical and a horizontal axis, right? So um, air flares were different than air tracks because air tracks were on one axis at the diagonal angle. Air flares twisted like a windmill in the air, right? But there's also um, uh, a Piking of the legs, right? where your legs are open, but mm-hmm. they're also bending at the hips, folding at the hips like a straddle, like a stretch. Right. And um, and it was first uh, a guy named Paolo from Holland that we saw do this variation. Mm-hmm. He's also disabled, one leg shorter than the other. But then Ivan, B-boy Ivan, is very famous. Yep. That I'm going to start doing that version. He called his version Starman or Star Trek, but mm-hmm. it had that rotation and it had that pike at the hips, kind of like Paolo. And so Bobak and I were talking one day and Bobak said, you know, that looks more like an air flare than an air track. But he was kind of using quote, air quotes, but then mm-hmm. that turn. everyone else in LA started calling it an air flare. Then the whole world started calling it an air flare. So that's one. Mm-hmm. But two, we took, and we were differentiated for a time between 96 and 97 between air track and air flare. We would do both mm-hmm. separately, sometimes in combos. Um, so we did every combo we could think of with either or both of those variations, mm-hmm. the, the, the spin in the air. Yeah. Um, so flare, air flare, flare was Charles. Um, air flare to flare was already Ivan. Windmill air flare windmill was already Ivan. Um, mm-hmm. um, Air flare to head spins, air flare to 90, continuous air flare, like two or three or more. That mm-hmm. was all Pablo. All three of those were Pablo. Um, air flare to halo was Sean, make a man. Um, halo, air flare, halo, that was me. Double halo, air flare, double halo, that was me. Um, 
uh, uh, halo to one and a half air flare. That was me. Um, <laughs> one arm air flare off of the inside arm. There's a, an inside arm. It's like when you go into it, you put on one hand and the other hand, right? And so often air right. flare off the second hand. Well, one arm mm-hmm. air flare off the second hand. I would do air flare off of the first hand. That was me. That was 1996. Um, and that's quite common now. Um, one and a half off of that one hand. Um, and this is just this is just one category of movement, right? So right. the walks, for example. Now, lots of people think that walks are mine, and when if someone else does them, they call bike and shout my name on the mic or something terrible yeah. like that. And I've come out in defense of a lot of people that this has happened to lately over the last you know five years or so. Um, but walks are not mine as a category of movement, but I did invent a few. So. Um, mm-hmm. One is, um, so usually they're straight arms and then the bent arms are either turtles or crickets or jackets. Those are the bent arms. Mm-hmm. That's kind of it. So I invented a, a bent arm one where my uh, hips are not resting on my elbows. My hips are between my elbows. And, and, I, and my, my chest is, you know, an inch or two off the floor. I call those scorpions. And then I had a, 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 with my legs bent and I had a variation with my legs together that I call boardwalks. So that's mine. Um, air flares into and out of those movements, that's mine uh, uh, as far as the combo. Uh, scorpion air flares, doing that same low air flare multiple times in a row, that's mine. Uh, and that's actually become quite common now. Um, and there are like five people that do it, which is pretty cool. And the first guy that came out and did it had no idea that I did it until I posted a clip of the two of us doing it side by side. And then he was my, his mind was blown. Uh, it was pretty funny when it, when it happened because I, I tagged him in it on Facebook um, like five or six years ago. Um, that's another category of moves. The third category of moves is that the flips I was talking about. So yeah. that my legs weren't very strong, so I couldn't do a lot of normal flips other than a basic back flip and maybe a, with a little twist. Uh, can't run flip to save my life, by the way. Um, I decided to see what would happen if I flipped off my hands and missed my feet, didn't land on my feet. So we already had a movement in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s called a shoot through, which you, I'm sure you're somewhat familiar with. Like if you're in a push-up position, hands on the floor, feet on the floor, shoot the feet through, right? And you land on your back, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Um, what if we went higher, like Moy from Had a Coil went higher like a Bronco and then, yep. whoa, and a big slam on his back, right? So I thought, what if you could reverse that? What if you could do it sideways? What if you could do it with a twist? What if you did it off your head or your elbow or whatever? And I started to think, okay, what, what can I do with that? Can I, can I do that? So obviously I did the shoot through first, the big shoot through and whatever. And then I started to do combos with the shoot through, like air flare to the big shoot through, uh, back handspring to the shoot through. And then I thought, okay, well, now I've got to reverse this. So I had a, a tough time doing it from a Chinese getup, from a kip up, like the Kung Fu guy yep. to a push up, But... I learned very fast that if I do it from a head spring, I get so much pop that I don't know what to do with the power. Like I, I face planted a bunch of times uh, on a gymnastics floor with mats to where, to where I started to say, okay, well, I've got to find another way to land this. So or I've got to use this up strength that I've developed over these years, upper arm strength, right? Upper body strength. And I started to pop off my head in a head spring and land in a planche, in a handstand, in a headstand, in a stab, and then be able to combo into a 90, into an air flare, into halos, into a headspin, 
and or do a, a few in a row. And then I said, okay, well, let me go sideways. Okay, that's a cartwheel. What happens if I miss my feet on a cartwheel? I land on my shoulder. That hurts. Okay, so now what do I do with that? Do I brace harder, stiffen up, and make it like a cool slam? Yeah, that was one. I called that a sledgehammer. Or I landed on my hands. So it became almost a double cartwheel. That's also a sledgehammer. Um, but when I landed on my shoulder, I also sometimes rolled in an interesting way. And I thought, oh, what can I do with that roll? I let the momentum carry me into what we call an aerial. It's a, mm-hmm. a double window, like where you drill in the air, but your head is off the floor, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you do a, a 720 from your back to your back. And I did that out of this cartwheel, missed my feet, went on my shoulder. Then I called that a tumbleweed because of the kind of movement that it had. The head spring to my hands, I called that a free weight. Um, I did it off of one hand, either on my shoulder or into a worm. I call that a hot potato. That's very common now. Um, uh, the sledgehammer in some derivatives is, is common. Again, uh, freely is not. Some people have done it. Uh, there's a guy, there's actually a kid from Africa. I forget which country. Uh, in Africa, but he's uh, famous for his free will. He actually does them from an inverted handstand and he, he pikes his legs back to get a lot of spring and then he kips off of this inverted hollow back position with the double jointed shoulders and lands in a planche, you know. But he's doing it now in 2021. I did this in 1999. All these movements it's- that I'm talking about were developed in 1999. Is this how you got the name Crazy Cujo? Because if y'all don't know Breaking, this is some crazy ass shit that he's talking about right now. Yeah, I got it a little earlier than that, but yes, yes, that's pretty much, pretty much. Because you just do crazy shit. Yeah, because I did crazy things with a vision. I was specifically trying to do things that have never been done before that people did not believe were possible. And I did them. Where did Cujo come from? Cujo came from uh, uh, me, you know, like you, you've seen the old, older images of me when I had a lot of hair and big bushy yeah. goatee, like bushier than yours. Um, I, I oh, had please tell me it's not from the dog. It is from the dog. Yeah. <laughs> totally from the dog. Because, dude, I, like we would, you know, we would bug out. We would always bug out. We would always be stupid because uh, we were adolescent kids with way too much testosterone, just having too much fun, right? Too much energy. Uh, and so, you know, that could come out in a negative way and we could fight or have a right. battle, but it could also come out in a positive way. And we would just be stupid and have fun and yell and whatever. Um, so I would just jump on people and start biting their heads. <laughs> It's just stupid. For those, so, it was just stupid, but that's how I got the name Cujo. So for those of you that don't know, Cujo is a Stephen King short story that was made into a movie about a St. Bernard, a rabbit St. Bernard that terrorizes a family and just drools yeah. at the mouth. It's, it was like 1972 or something when the, when the book was released. Was it that early? I remember it from my, I remember it from my childhood and luckily yeah. I didn't have nightmares of dogs because of that. Yeah. But you, it's, if, if you know, if you know this movie, if you know this dog, it is hilarious to be named after that. But as he said, it doesn't have to be a bad thing. It's he was just that crazy biting people, jumping on people, biting people's heads. I can understand you getting the name Cujo and yeah. then the crazy shit you do breaking crazy Cujo. I get it. Okay. I anymore, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> that you know of. Just in case, just in case you're worried about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, quick question. I want to back up real quick. Um, you were born deaf in your right ear and you said it progressed uh, it, uh, your left ear progressed. What happened with your left ear? Uh, 
left ear was um, I had uh, an ear infection when I was four years old that uh, ostensibly was from an allergy to milk, which has mm. since gone away. But at the time, I would get a rash on my cheek and then I would lose hearing. No one ever knew why. And then I eventually, you know, I stopped for a while. The hearing loss stopped. And then I started drinking milk again. Julie, you know, I tried to be scientific and just like, you know, in retrospect, right? I had a little mm-hmm. bit here, a little bit there, and gradually up the dose to where it felt like I could normal and have normal milk and not have the same um, uh, repercussions for it. Mm-hmm. It was never explained. It was never figured out. But it happened when I was four. Uh, when I was 15, um, in PE class in high school, shortly after I started dancing, we were playing softball. And mm-hmm. literally the same dude that like was calling me out and trying me up for getting his moves, we were, he was on the opposing team. And mm-hmm. I was way out in the outfield. And he hit the ball right to me, all the way out to me. Put my glove up to try to catch it. Ball went right over my glove and into my mouth. What? And, and it didn't break any teeth, surprisingly, like, a, a, you know, my thing. But um, what did happen within about an hour or so was my hearing rapidly declined to zero, to complete deafness, total deafness. And it stayed that way for, I think, three or four weeks before it gradually came back. But it didn't come back to the level that it was at prior to the injury. But, you know, it wasn't very high anyway. Um, and so I lost uh, uh, a lot of hearing from the stupid accident with the softball, getting hit, hit in the face with the softball uh, at long range. And um, then incidents like getting hit in the head, whether it was a punch or an accident, because, you know, doing these moves that we were talking about had a lot of face plants. I landed on my head a bunch of times trying to learn these things. I, I, had, I had the scariest concussion of my life in 1997, September 26th, 1997. I remember that the following day we had one of our biggest battles up to that point uh, against Abstract Flavor, which was September 27th. And the day that's on the video is hard coded into the video. Um, so the day before, maybe it was two days before, um, we were practicing in Barmack and Barback's garage. And I tried to do a one and a half air track, but I only got a half and landed on the back of my head on their floor, which was carpeted, when only I'm on top of carpet on top of concrete, but the carpet wasn't enough to soften the blow. And I blacked out. I crawled over to the couch and I started laughing for some reason. I don't remember this, but that's what they told me. And then when I I sort of snapped out of it, I couldn't see. And so I thought what any normal kid would think, let me walk around the block and walk it off. It, yeah, I started walking around the block and they had to like, get that and come and get me because I was literally like blindly walking down the street. Um, so I couldn't see. They brought me to the hospital and uh, did a CAT scan and an x-ray. And I had a, a mild concussion, but I hit the part of my head um, where the brain, uh, the part of the brain that governs sight is that explained uh, loss, which very thankfully got it back the following day. Uh, I sprained my neck. <laughs> and we had a battle two days later. So and I'm pretty we won. sure. We won, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sitting here 
listening to this with my mouth literally wide open, like not even joking. I am staring with my mouth open and my feet are tingling at this. So if you are listening and you're experiencing that, just know I'm doing the same thing right now because this is mental, bro. Ah, uh, okay. No, yeah. no more, in, no, no more injury stories. I can't. It's, <laughs> uh, how <laughs> uh, you were crazy, dude. I didn't, I, I know you're crazy. I just didn't realize you were this crazy as kid. So, uh, which came first Lux or ill abilities? Ah, um, quick overlap there. So Lux Eterna, was a dance company, dance, and then later a circus company that I ran for 10 years. I started it in 2006 when I was in college uh, mm-hmm. in university at Cal State Northridge. And uh, that, that, that was fun. I, I went to university intending to major in kinesiology, study of the movement hey. of the body. Yep. And under the umbrella of kinesiology at my university, you could pick one of five different disciplines, five different focuses or focus. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'm going to do exercise science because that seemed to have the broadest application to what I was interested in. And, you know, like when I was a kid, I thought I was going to be a doctor and I was, you know, I was at the hospital a lot for you know, ear, ear related things, eye related things, like, mm-hmm. like this isn't well known, but I have no tear ducts. My eyes water constantly. I was born this way. I've had multiple surgeries. None of them were successful. So my eyes water constantly. I'm always having to rub my eyes and wipe. Um, so I was at the hospital a lot as a kid. And I started to get really fascinated with medicine and what the doctors were doing. And I would study on my own just for fun, you know, trying to understand what was what. And so, you know, when I actually got into high school and college, and because of the direction I had chosen, uh, being sort of kind of anti-intellectual way that that became not like a career in medicine became an option i would have had to have um built a foundation much earlier and so okay well the next best thing would be something like exercise science where maybe i could become a physical therapist or you just uh, i i like the body like even when i was uh, also when i was a kid i memorized almost all of uh, the names of the muscles in the body that were useful not like some of the weird ones that nobody needs to know about doctors and other specialists, but you know, like the useful muscles you know, around a hundred mm-hmm. of them. And like, I'd memorized them when I was 12 years old, just cause I thought it was interesting and cool. Uh, so with the discipline that focuses on anatomy and physiology, I thought that'd be perfect. And, and it was, and uh, one of the requirements for people in that major specialization you choose was to take a basic dance class. So you had, uh, you know, I had to sign up for that. So I did. And there were all these, you know, football players and pre-physical therapists and pre-personal trainers and, you know, people that were going to coach sports or what have you. Um, mm-hmm. All these, all these, you know, regular people, some athletic, some not, were in there. But I was the only dancer, and so I, this being a dance and me being a dancer, I was stretching to warm up. Now I'm not known for stretching. I don't. I don't even stretch now. <laughs> I don't warm up. I, I thought maybe I could stretch for this class, you know, because I don't know what she's <laughs> going to make us do, what, what the teacher is going to make us do. So I was sitting there stretching in some sort, and so the teacher walks in, sees me stretching, 
said, oh, you must be a dancer. What styles are, uh, what style do you do? And I was like, oh, uh, I, I went down the line because by that point, obviously I'd been breaking already for um, 2005, so 13 years uh, of breaking. Um, and I'd already done a little bit of modern, a little bit of ballet, did that in community college. And uh, I'd done a little bit of circus, not anything formal, just kind of messed around on poles, like mm. at the L.A. Valley College where I went to school, but which yep. also had an open gym where you could go and train gymnastics on, uh, for fun. Uh, yes, I've been there many the times with. Sorry. What? I was going to say, yeah, I've been there many times okay, with great, uh, great. flips and plow training. Bar, you know, and like there's a, a, a rod, a metal pole there that holds up the high bar. I would treat that like mm-hmm. you're trying to hold and do flags and things like that on it. So I, I taught myself a little bit of basic Chinese pole. I had done a little bit of, uh, I had taken a few gymnastics classes at the age of like 27, 28, you know, finally. Again, not mm-hmm. a gymnast by by education, just something I got interested in later. And I, I got kind of good at like the rings, you know? So like the mm-hmm. three main things I did in that gymnastic class were get better at flips, get better at handstands and uh, circle and learn how to do the rings, uh, muscle ups and handstands and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I told her, I, you know, gymnastics and circus, and a, a lot of brain, a little bit of ballet, a little bit of modern, a little bit of capoeira. I missed around capoeira back in, Back when that movie came out, all of the straw, 1993, you know, <laughs> I, I, yeah. but I took a fun month, you know, but I got to learn from Amin Santo, uh, who was in the movie, um, and a local teacher in LA. We still teach in LA to this, which is pretty cool. Um, nice. Uh, so I told her, like, I went down the line, the line, so like, you do all these things, you should be a choreographer. I've got this class where I teach choreographed theory, you should sign up. I'm like, no, hold on, I don't want to be a choreographer, I've taken enough criticism of my American. I can feel so much, so much hate, you know, because obviously like you go into choreography, now you've got professional criticism, got yeah. people writing for papers and websites that absolutely hate you and want, want the whole world to know it. Um, and so I, I didn't <laughs> think I could handle that. But um, I, I, I did agree to compromise and just try out one class and see how it goes. And I fell in love with it very fast. Mm. And um, developed a whole lot of cool material and then started thinking, okay, well, what do with this? If I were to start a company, what would I want it to look like? And obviously not just B-boys and B-girls, there's already breaking companies, you know, that just break and do breaking routines or whatnot. Um, I wonder if there are other people like me that break also do these, this variety of other styles. Can I find them? And I have, more than a few. I, I had a nice little handful of friends that had done some of uh, these other styles that I had done. Some modern, some ballet, some capoeira, some circus, some gymnastics, some combination thereof. Uh, some of them also had some popping, locking, hip-hop, house, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, and it became like, you know, this word fusion is really just very blasé, very played out, even back then it was. So I didn't want to call it a fusion company. I called it more of a hybrid theater company. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I found a number of people that I put this choreography on onto, and one of the things that I had learned in my class was not to use music that overpowers the dancers on stage. Because, like for example, if you use an opera singer, mm-hmm. um, if you use opera music, the music is too big. You don't even yeah. pay attention to the dancers because they're so small compared to the music, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I thought, well. 
challenge accepted. And so I started looking for music that was too big and trying to develop movements that would match it in their bigness to not have a better word, right? And so, uh, so I did this high-flying acrobat choreography that combined movements from ballet, breaking, like, you know, for example, in around the genre in ballet is pretty much the same as a sweep. A sweep, right. You're, you're sitting down or you're squatting all the way down. Your toe isn't pointed when you're, when you're breaking, you know, things like that. And so I would just try to ideas from breaking that overlap with ideas from the ballet, uh, circus, gymnastics, and, and, um, and combine them in ways that I thought was fluid and effectively its own technique, like flux technique while I had it, while I was doing it. And we had a heck of a lot of fun with it. We, we won some awards. We got a lot of recognition locally. Um, not so much nationally. We did go out of state a little. One to um, Utah. We go out of the country a few times. Um, mm. uh, backing up a little bit, before I started my company, I started to work with a circus artist that also trained at Valley College. She was a hand-to-hand artist and they would train their act and, and I would watch and then I would be doing this freewheel and tumbleweeds and they would watch me doing these crazy things. And we mm-hmm. had a lot of mutual admiration for each other. And uh, so one day he's like, hey, you know, like I'd add some data to these corporate events that I do. Like, do you want to come along and do something? Break in some interesting way. Maybe you'll have makeup or a different costume, but you know, you can just break. And so I was doing that. Uh, with another guy named Tails, you might know Lamont. Um, yep. Yeah, uh, West Coast Rockers, California. Now Cyber Yoga doing his own thing, and um, and so we did some stuff with Michael. Michael Manzanet is his name. Wonder World Entertainment is his company, and uh, so he uh, and so I'd already done some stuff with him. Then I started Lux. We had done a few small shows for dance festivals and whatnot. Got a video, sent it to him. Said, Oh, what do you think of this? Do you think this would fit in your one of your circus shows sometime? He's like, yes, this is perfect. I love it. I want to build a theater show. Let's put this in it. It'll, it'll be one of the acts, you know, like you'll have the someone will do a Chinese pole, someone will do an aerial, they'll do Lux, you'll do this four or five minute act of yours. Um, and, th- and, th- and that was that was fun, right? Um, and so from there, being around circus equipment all the time, started playing a lot, mm-hmm. getting good. I don't Played with Chinese pole a little bit at during in the gymnastic classes, learned straps very quick, learned Chinese pole very quick, unlike real Chinese. Um, and um, this company traveled quite a bit around the country, and we traveled with them. And then they traveled out of the country once or twice to uh, like I got to go to Jamaica with them, so that was Lux's first international trip. And then uh, we booked a commercial where. Uh, we got to uh, perform underwater to be like human deter- human pieces of fabric, you know, being washed or whatever for a detergent commercial. Uh, India. So we got to go to India and film underwater and all get deathly ill in the process. Um, <laughs> but but it was it was quite a lot of fun. Um, oh, and uh, uh, we, we got to go to a big circus festival in Holland, in Rotterdam, called Circusstad. Uh, which translates to Circus City, if I recall mm-hmm. correctly. But we did a lot of really cool things with that company. Um, and uh, our final performance was um, uh, in October of 2016. 
where um, I, I had myself, also again, who's been with me from the very beginning to the very end, uh, Rubber Legs from Germany, and uh, B Girl Miss Lee, who's uh, famous as a stunt woman, um, but still breaks. And uh, we had Trunkball, I had my straps, we had Airport, remember those hoverboards that were really popular mm-hmm. for a few years? And we had those, all four of us did like a really cool choreographed sequence on, on hoverboards. You know, but we did a lot of fun things with this hybrid stuff, putting different ideas together and making theater out of it. And uh, I learned a lot about theater and, and being a choreographer, being a director. And I ended up learning that as much as I like the creative side of it, I don't like pressure. I don't mm-hmm. like the pressure of having to create something on a deadline, of having to constantly churn material, whether I'm inspired or not, whether I'm to or not, right. satisfy someone else. Um, mm-hmm. and I, I don't like the criticism. I'm never satisfied with my work. I always think it could be better. It always could, but I'm always, I always had the sense of shame about it while at the mm-hmm. same time being very proud of it, which is a weird thing that I never quite, never quite reconciled. Um, and, uh, at this point, I, if I, if I don't do anything choreographically again in my entire career, uh, I'm okay with that because I've done a lot of good a lot of good work with Lux, uh, but you know, same time I do miss it sometimes, and perhaps will come up that I'll want to do again. So, without having a professional circus background or education, how did you get hooked up with consulting for Cirque du Soleil? Um, initially, my my first foray into working with Cirque was before I became a Cirque site. They wanted me as a b boy to test out this idea for um, uh, a human skateboard suit or a wheel suit. <laughs> they, a what? They, yeah, they created a spandex suit. Well, not created, but they had a spandex suit. They put a bunch of Velcro strips all over strategic spot and then added um, uh, what, what, a ball bearings. Yeah. So, you know, like kind of like three, six degree wheels that can roll in any direction and they put those all over my suit it was very heavy and rolled me down skate ramps happy try to do and all that it was a cool idea but it meant to be so it didn't go anywhere that was 2004 got to go out to toronto and montreal a few times to work with them both the headquarters mm-hmm. and at a skate park in toronto uh so that that fell apart they asked me to do another project um i don't recall the year Exactly. It might have been 2010 or 2012. Uh, but they did ask me to, to come back again and do another project that involved Chinese pole and uh, and like a machine that would have the pole move all around in interesting mm-hmm. ways. And then that fell apart after like two days. Um, <laughs> it's not being the right person for that project. Or they went somewhere else. I'm not really sure. Dismissed me after two days. Um, so I did a couple of things like that where I was um, a consultant, you know, that was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. But that was largely outside of my circus training. But uh, uh, it it was pretty cool to to go from being a self-taught circus artist, thanks to being a self-taught b-boy, to actually performing my solo act with a high-level circus artists, you know, as both a, a straps artist and a Chinese pole artist. Level up, bro, level up. It was really cool. I've, uh, I have uh, since put that aside also. I decided mm-hmm. to stop doing that um, when the world shut down. I started in 2009, ended in 2019. 
like my last gig was 2019. Um, and that was because there was a couple of reasons. One was, uh, um, this called return on effort, similar to return mm-hmm. on investment, ROI, so this is ROE. And mm-hmm. when think about the amount of effort and risk that goes into high level acrobatic work. Yeah. Or it's circus work or b-boy work, like b-boy battles, especially mm-hmm. compared to what your return on that, what did you get out of that? It's right. such a wide disparity. The spread is so big that I didn't feel like I could justify doing it anywhere. Uh, because at the same time, I needed to narrow my focus to just a few things. Same way I narrowed my focus as a, a very early developing b-boy to just a couple things to mm-hmm. specialize in that I really excel at i needed to do that with the rest of my life um partly as a result of the pandemic and partly as a result of you know with the world shutting down as a result of the mm-hmm. pandemic but also a result of my dad getting as sick as he did getting to step up and be effectively the patriarch of the family now um, right. because there's no other no other adult men in the family that everyone else can kind of look to for any kind of support you know not mm-hmm. to not to create any controversy or anything with, you know, patriarchy versus anything else. Roles and everything, right. That's a, like in, in the family structure, that's a very real thing, you know? Yeah. And um, so, so I just needed to really specialize on things that had a high return on effort than mm-hmm. circus arts and, uh, and uh, honestly, b-boy battles. B-boy battles have like the worst return on effort because it's the <laughs> highest amount of effort you could possibly put into anything yeah. for possibly zero return because unless you win, you get nothing. Unless it's right. one of those special where they have some tiered prizes for, you know, second prize, third prize, maybe top eight or top 16, get a little bit of money. But typically, like, you enter a b-boy battle because you really want a battle. You know, you're right. not because definitely get anything out of it and if you do you might win 5k 10k it's crazy now but um but second place might get nothing you know and uh so you know the last b-boy battle that i was in with ill abilities in singapore uh also in 2019 i'm in 2018 in 2018 uh we went to singapore something else we were performing for the president of singapore it was really cool really cool festival Mm -hmm. called uh true colors and um on our day off this battle was happening and uh, uh, Radical Force Jam do their anniversary every year. And, uh, and so we went and we entered the competition and we made it to the semifinals. And, you know, we were battling on concrete. Like we were, oh. our bodies were destroyed by that. But by, by the end, you know, we had the, the prelims. We, uh, we battled no. the Red Bull. We won All-Stars in the prelims, which is pretty fun. Um, uh, then there was the top 16, the top eight, and then the top four. So we had battles on concrete that day and we went out two three times each battle you know each each person we were we were wrecked we were destroyed and we had to then work the next day and rehearse and perform and all that um and so i just remember like the the way we felt day next day thinking like and then comparing what we earned nothing Mm -hmm. from that day versus what we earned for doing very low impact performance or the freaking president in front of 10,000 people in this huge stadium, you know, <laughs> and it's like, why am I doing this when I could be doing more of that, you know? So right. that was that one, one experience. Um, 
But circus is like, you know, the worst, in, some of the worst injuries I've had, I've had a few, obviously that concussion I mentioned, but I've had a few injuries from, from circus that are among the worst I've ever had. And one was a broken leg and the other was uh, a, a rib that, that once that popped out and never got popped back in. It's still out right now. No, bro. Come on with the injuries. We, t- we left like, that it, like 20 minutes ago. It really popped out to where it could be popped back in. It's like the ligaments. Uh, yeah, the, the cartilage, sorry. The cartilage got shifted in such a way to where like it requires surgery to put it back in and I don't need to do surgery. So yeah, so with that kind of experience, you know, and circus just not paying what it used to, what I heard it used to pay before I got into yeah. it. Like, <laughs> right when I started doing it. But, you yeah. know, so a lot of the circus work was on par with a lot of the people I work performance-wise, more or less, you know, and it just became like, ah. Like, right. like, yeah, I get a thousand bucks or something for like a five minute performance, but it's also like the logistics of packing up a Chinese pole into two giant snowboard bags that may or may not be considered oversized. Will the company pay for the oversized fee or not? I don't right. know. Plus I got to carry two more bags. Who carries four bags by themselves without help I, I can't do that right just the stress of all of that you know of, of getting that to the port and um and putting it all together and what if it's not put together just right i could break my leg again i could pop out my rib again if it's not just right it's just it just it just became too much to where i didn't want to deal with it anymore and someone literally offered me a job last month that would have performed uh this past weekend like two days ago three days ago and I, and I said, no, I, I don't do pole anymore. Sorry. And I Good on you. Know, know, know your body, know your worth, know your yeah. limitations. I get yeah. you. Yeah. And it's not even the monetary worth. It's just don't want to go through that. You know, mm-hmm. some, of it, some of it is uh, a silliness versus seriousness kind of mm-hmm. question. You know, like think about how serious the work is now that B-boys are doing or can do with the Olympics right. coming up. We haven't really touched on this. We're like, going to um, talk about gonna, that a little bit. going to be a part of the process in some small way, you know? Right. How important and serious is that? That's, an, that's incredible. Versus a circus show. A lot of it mm. depends on the show and the company and the performance, but a lot of it is silly. It just is, you yeah. know? The last the last gig I did, um, I, I was in a monkey suit. Like, a human monkey suit with monkey makeup and it was too hot with all the fur and everything. I, I was a monkey performing live with a, a little singer, like a 12, 13 year old singer that was very good. She was on America's Got Talent. I don't remember her name uh, at the moment. Um, cute little Asian girl, you know, um, might be like, she might be 15 by now, but very, very young. They didn't tell me I was going to have a live singer. When we did the rehearsal, I almost kicked her, you know, it was, it was just stupid. But I was a monkey. I was supposed to a monkey dancing around this little girl singing a silly song like and then it was for, this just uh, sounds weird but it was a, a corporate event for funko pop you know that little toy that everyone collects now like i don't know it's a thing in, in the u.s maybe not internationally nope. but um mark hamill was at the event to present his own funko pop doll toy whatever and i passed him in the hallway on my way out from my performance as <laughs> he went in to present his Mark Hamill doll. And he looked at me like, hello. And he felt really awkward, you could tell. And I was like, this is Luke Skywalker. I want to shake his hand and get a picture so bad. 
but not in this outfit. And that kind of it for me to where I was like, I should not be doing this with my life. And so the pandemic (laughs) was kind of my my chance to just be done with it. That and like, oh, you know, like I like in the move from Burbank to Santa Clara, I I don't know where I put my gear, my pole gear. I know where the pole is, but not the gear to the pole or the gear to to protect in from the pole it's in a bag somewhere i don't know where the bag is so mm. just you know like having to get all new gear all new rigging equipment it's, yeah it, it, i had so many reasons to be done with it that i was done with it um and and i'm i'm okay with that i'm very happy about that but i'm also happy that i got to have those experiences and do those really cool things with it you know being able to do a flag with a, a woman standing on me like that's cool Not many people because you're super strong which transitions into the next thing i want to talk about Uh, you mentioned earlier that you and your dad used to go to the gym. Uh, you started studying uh, kinesiology. Is that how you got into deadlifts? Yes and no. Uh, um, so my dad had a little home in the garage that was nothing. Mm-hmm. It was a crappy bench press, a crappy bar, had like a leg extension thingy at the end of it. He had some dumbbells, and that's about it. Um, so we couldn't do a with that. He also had like uh, Arnold's Encyclopedia of Bodybuilding and some other bodybuilding instructional manuals, some magazines. Mm-hmm. You know, so like at 12 years old, like, you know, I, I was really fascinated by that. I didn't know a human being could look like that. Uh, and I briefly thought, like, maybe I want to do that. And then I, you know, that didn't last. But I did do a little bit of, of weight training with my dad. Uh, mm-hmm. Got me into that. Did not do deadlifts at the time because that wasn't feasible with what I had. And it just didn't interest me. I never really mm-hmm. touched deadlift. I think, uh, you know, I took some classes in a semester class in high school. I took a semester class in university, not in junior college, but in junior college. I did briefly join him for like a month or two and then just decided I didn't want to spend the money anymore. I did do mm-hmm. deadlift once at that gym. I've also just pressed on like the Smith machine didn't squat. I did do deadlift, deadlift once just to see what I could do. I got to 275 and that was hard enough and I stopped. Um, and so then um, what made me come back to it was uh, in 2014, I already had you know a long career by then, over 20 years of dancing mm-hmm. and circus and choreography and just, you know, some injuries that came along with that, some aches and pains. And I thought, you know, some of the, I know enough about the body to know how to rehabilitate certain things, but I I also know that there are certain things I can't rehabilitate without access to weights and some things, Mm -hmm. some injury prevented just by being stronger. This local gym in Burbank where I lived at the time is having a 10 or $15 a month sale. Let's go. Let's just, why not? That's harmless. Let's just sign up. So girlfriend at the time and I signed up together and we started going and um, one of the, th- the things that we found uh, that we ran into logistically was that we were going after she got work right before dinner time around five o'clock six o'clock mm-hmm. first time to go to any gym anywhere in the world because that's when everybody else goes so we thought okay well this sucks how do we get in and out of here as quickly as possible so it sucks less and <laughs> narrow the focus to just a few exercises that hit the most amount of muscle at the same time with the mm-hmm. least amount of effort, effectively, most efficiency. And so those turned out to be uh, a squat, 
a mm-hmm. press of any kind, overhead or a bench, whatever, uh, a, um, a, a hinge, which is the deadlift, and yeah. a pulling movement, any kind of pulling, pull up, row, whatever. Um, okay. And so as we started to that and liking it, we realized that three of those four movements are a sport uh, unto itself called powerlifting. Yeah. So we thought, okay, oh, this, well, let's just let's powerlift for fun. We don't need to like have competitive aspects. That's what we do. We just do it for fun. Okay. Yeah, let's just do powerlifting. When we realized that what we were doing with powerlifting, and powerlifting is really just one rep for, you know, attempt mm-hmm. versus like four reps, like five by five or whatever we were right. doing at the time. Then we started having fun with it and trying to see what can we do for one rep. And uh, we started to surprise ourselves quite a bit, uh, both of us with, with deadlifts. She's quite a good deadlifter too. Not so much with the other stuff, the squats and bench, but with the deadlift, it was like, whoa, like we're just going to add five or 10 pounds a week. And like, we just kept adding five or 10 pounds a week, like week after week after week. <laughs> and not really knowing where we were going to end up, also not knowing what we were doing. And um, uh, very quickly, like within a couple of weeks, I think surpassed my uh, 275 previous max, got to three plates, 315 pounds of 140, 30 kilos. Um, uh, 275 would be 125 kilos, you know? So like, you know, these are just very modest numbers, but, but also, like, but I mean, in the scheme of things, very modest, modest, and also in retrospect, but, uh, you know, to the average gym goer, not so modest. Like those are, those are pretty significant. Like th- th- those are my numbers. Then, uh, within a few months, I think seven months from joining the gym to, to this day, I, I, I got, 405, which is 183 or four kilos. And um, 405 on a squat? Uh, no, that's a deadlift. No, I mean, uh, I, I sorry. Deadlift. Yeah. On a, on a yeah. deadlift. Yeah, on a right. deadlift. Because remember, I got these skinny, this skinny little chicken legs. If you're doing the kilo conversion, I know it by heart. It, it's 183 to 184, 183.5. Okay, yeah. great. Never mind. So I got all the kilos in my head. <laughs> um, yeah, do the conversions very fast. Mm. Um, um, so that, that happened pretty quickly with terrible form. So then um, a, a friend of mine, also a, a former B-boy, uh, offered to coach us for three months. So we did that. That was uh, together. That was a lot of fun and uh, got deadlifted to go up, really. Uh, squat went up. A little, I, I squatted 315 finally with, with him. Uh, bench didn't really go up. You know, it, it just got better with form. And mm-hmm. then she started to actually mm-hmm. say, okay, well, I don't want to pay for a coach. He coached us for free as a favor. And then beyond three mm-hmm. months, we would have to pay. I didn't want to pay because I was gay. Uh, but so <laughs> I also have a kinesiology background. Uh, I, I love thinking about and figuring things out. And so I thought, okay, I can probably understand how to get better at this stuff without having to pay someone for me. Mm-hmm. So I did. And um, little by little, uh, all of these numbers started going up started getting a little bit more efficient, a little bit cleaner with my form, a little bit stronger here and there, um, gained a little bit of weight, gained a little bit of muscle, not too much. You know, remember, I weighed 125 in high school. I weighed like 135 to 140 uh, around this time. So I, uh, over time, I, I swelled up to 145, 155 at my height, which is about 70 kilos. Mm-hmm. And now I'm back down to 145.46, which is about 66 kilos. For European friends, and um, 
I managed to get my my squat up to 465, so I don't have chicken legs anymore. Uh, 465 is uh, 211 kilos. Uh, I got my bench up to 305, which is 138 kilos. And I got my deadlift up to um, 605, which is about 275 kilos. No, we didn't lose connection or anything, ladies and gentlemen. I'm just sitting here with nothing to say because these numbers are fucking mental. How tall are you again now? Uh, five four, but for someone my size, I have very long arms, so that helps with the deadline. Five four seven. No, you weigh seventy kilos now. I, I weigh I weigh uh, uh, in kilos about sixty six, sixty seven. Oh, sorry, so pounds. I'm, sorry, I'm still in kilos yeah, in my head. Yeah, one one forty six right now. And he's lifting whatever, dude. All right, so I'm done with you and your fucking crazy ass body. But uh, I do, I mind you, the mental injuries that he's had, the uh, the differences that he, well, medical differences that he uh, was born with, that uh, he's working through, and so I'm just ill abilities, as you called it, is ill for those that don't know street terminology. Ill doesn't mean ill as in sick. It means ill as in sick as that shit's fat as dope as fuck and this dude right here his name isn't crazy cujo his name is ill as fuck cujo for me (laughs) but before but i still want to talk about one more thing because you have been uh is it the last year you've been getting uh doing this work for what's coming up in 2024 has it been a year has it just been a couple months just the last couple of months just been the last couple months that's october so uh in a previous conversation, a previous episode with uh, my cousin Flips, uh, he was one of the he's one of the people that's been really adamant about uh, the work and trying to get breaking into the Olympics. And Cujo is actually now one of a few certified judges uh, for the Olympics for breaking, and just actually did the World Championships in France. Yeah. Talk to me, bro. What's, what's, what's the, what's the okay. system like? What's how, like, are you like a gym? Are you like a gymnastics judge now where no. like you have? No. Uh, no, 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 no. Well, let me back up first before I address that. Cause that's definitely an okay. uh, incorrect assumption that a lot of people might have about the judging system, how it would be judged in the Olympics. But uh, mm-hmm. so in order to get breaking into the Olympics, we have to go through an already established organization which is called the world dance sport federation or the wdsf this Mm. organization has been trying to get ballroom dancing into the olympics competitive ballroom dancing for years i i don't know why they have not had the success that they desire and Mm. have not had it yet but they haven't had it yet Uh, but because they've already got this uh, pre-existing relationship it made the most sense for breaking to piggyback onto that now, it could have gone another way, but that's just not the way that it's gone. Like, mm-hmm. for example, another friend of mine and I were talking about jujitsu, Brazilian jujitsu, and how judo offered the jujitsu community to piggyback on their relationship. Ah, the, that's how it works. Said, no, we have already got our own federation with ourselves. That worked out for them uh, in breaking, especially in the U.S., there's a lot of conversation and controversy as to whether we should join with the ballroom organization to do this at all. A lot of people say no. A lot of people say, well, let's just get it. So 
ultimately what's happened is the whatever, let's just get there kind of thing for convenience. Mm-hmm. It's already established. We're going to go with them. Uh, I'm not the one that made that decision. That decision has been made and it's already in the works. So unless that train stops and we all have to make a new train, then that's the train we're going to ride. So mm-hmm. under the World Gasport Federation, which is international, each country needs to have its own national federation. Ours is called USA Dance, which again is primarily a ballroom, competitive ballroom dance organization. So mm-hmm. it needed its own breaking division underneath that national federation. That breaking division is called Breaking for BFG. And um, Breaking for what? What does the G stand gold, for? Gold. Gold. Breaking gold for gold. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so because we're creating this division, from scratch, uh, and this started in October, the people involved just started calling up people that they thought would be good for this role on the committee. We have to form these committees from scratch. And so Mm -hmm. I was offered the role of chair of the officials committee. Officials include judges, DJs, MCs, possibly uh, announcers, like a a Mm -hmm. I'm not sure yet. I I hope so, because that was a point of contention that we had a lot of people had when uh, the world championships happened a lot of people didn't like the commentary mm-hmm. um because one commentator didn't know anything about breaking the other commentator pretended to know about breaking mm. wasn't a good pair to have um i would rather have my personal opinion i'd rather have a commentator that doesn't know anything than a commentator that thinks they know everything right <laughs> you know what i mean because it's really interesting to hear about people that don't know actually think of it when they see it uh, yeah but if someone is telling them what to think who doesn't actually know what's it uh, yeah yeah whatever that, that's another conversation for <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people were really mad about it so yeah. uh, uh i am the chair of the officials committee i haven't put together my committee yet because it's not the focus the focus is organi- organization organizing events that will get uh the next b-boys to the next world championships possibly mm. to the world games uh next so they're doing all that behind the scenes i'll be filled in on that as it happens and then i'll start putting my committee as is needed as these events start having dates and locations venues um uh, staff then they'll come to me and say okay now we need judges and they need to be certified now mm. judge certification there are two levels of this system that is um, both both one and the same. The uh, the system is called Trivium, but at national and regional and local level, it's called the threefold or the trifold system. Mm-hmm. So um, they are there are two different certifications. You get the threefold before you get the Trivium. Mm-hmm. Um, to get the full certification, you sign up for a membership with USA Dance if you're American or your national federation if you're not. And mm-hmm. then you take what's called a Congress, a Congress, where for three hours a day on two days on some weekend, the next one is in January sometime, uh, you learn the why and the how of the system. And it is meant to be descriptive and not prescriptive, which is the biggest concern a lot of people have. They think the system is going to tell them how to dance, when Mm -hmm. in reality the system describes what they're doing while they're dancing. And then it uses crossfaders, digital crossfaders, because it's an iPad app, but digital crossfaders in the trifold uh, situation is three 
faders in the trivia, it's six faders. And mm-hmm. what you're doing is you're sliding it left and right, depending on who does which category or quality a little bit better. You don't have to do all three or all six faders. There are additional buttons. You don't have to press any of them. It's really just have to move one because then that changes the balance. And then it helps. It takes to help each individual judge make opinion both subjectively and objectively, mm-hmm. right? And to take it away from just this pointing left or right or tie, uh, ties are no longer possible in the system. It's a good thing. Interesting. Um, yeah, it's no longer possible because each um, each move of, of each fader is weighted by a percentage. So each category is thirty three and a third percent, right, of a hundred percent. And so, like, you move it just a little bit one way, another one a little bit more, like, you're going to get an imbalance. And that imbalance Interesting. will be one competitor or the other. So that's the way both systems work. To get the Trivium certification, you have to have already passed the uh, threefold certification mm-hmm. and then be invited to then take another six-hour Congress over one weekend to for the Trivium, where it gets a bit more in-depth in terms, not so much of the why anymore, but in terms of the practice of, of mm-hmm. using it, watch a bunch of battles and judge them using the interface. But that's how the Trivium will work. And yes. uh, so it's been used for a few different events recently, uh, but one of those was the WDSF World Championships in Paris, which mm-hmm. was just a week and a half ago. And it went very well. And the way that it works, you know, there's a, there's a whole team behind the system. It's not just a bunch of, a few judges and a few iPads um, who, you know, we don't bring our own iPads. Like there's a team that brings the iPads and there's a guy behind the scenes that collects all the stats mm. that are sent to him remotely. And so then he can coordinate those and then put them up on a website for the public to look at. So everything is extremely transparent. So you can see which judge voted which way and by how much mm-hmm. and by which category and how much and all that. And over time, what you'll see is outliers and you'll see if maybe someone is inconsistent, maybe someone is actually not good at this job of judging because that's now what it's meant to be, a job, not mm-hmm. this cool little thing you do between battles, you know. Right. Um, it's also meant to, under the IOC regulations, it's meant to separate judges from everyone else. So mm-hmm. under the umbrella of the IOC and UDSF, you can't be both a judge and a competitor or a judge and a coach or any of those other things. Within the federation, you can so you can go compete at a non-sanctioned event if you're also a judge at a sanctioned event. So that hasn't changed. As of now, okay. but long term, that might change to where, mm-hmm. you know, right now, only WDSF sanctioned events are going to have these relations and this, mm-hmm. this judging system. But over time, other events might decide to hire the team to use the system. You have to hire the whole team. Yeah. You can't just say, I'm hiring whoever I want and they're using that system. No, they have to be certified in the system and then you have to hire mm-hmm. the team. That provides the system with the path cool. and the guy behind doing all the core work. So uh, it's a much more advanced and much more legitimate approach to judging that uh, mm-hmm. I'm very supportive of and very excited about. Um, never had anything quite like this. We have had a few, but nothing that's on this scale and right. nothing with this amount of uh, power behind it, I think. It's amount of heft behind it. So I'm really excited about it. And, you know, I, I don't nice. know what's next, honestly. Uh, then 
putting together the chain of events that will lead to the next world championships and the world games Mm -hmm. and eventually the Olympics. And uh, I'll have uh, some role in that and hopefully be judging quite a few more of these. Who won the world championships in France this year? Uh, The uh, American won the B-Boy competition, which was Victor from Mm -hmm. uh, Florida. Forget what city in Florida he's from, but, you know, Mm -hmm. Victor, everyone knows. Uh, Super Montalvo on on Instagram, social media, Mm -hmm. um, Quadrant and and what else, Flavor Florida. Um, And uh, B-Girls, it was Ayumi from Body Carnival in Japan. Yes, right. Yeah. Yeah. And then when are the next when are the next uh, world championships? Uh, I don't know when, but I believe the next one will be in Japan. Nice. And the one after will be in Belgium. That's what I was told. 2023 is Belgium. I heard 2022 is Japan, but I've not seen confirmation. Sure. The only reason okay. I know 2023 is Belgium is because the guy from Belgium, who is probably the organizer of it, came out and told me after the event, like, let's talk about Belgium in two years. I'm doing it. So nice. Boom. Happening. Yeah. Hey, he's booked and blessed. Well, not yet. nice. Not yet. Just- well, it's in the cards. I mean, yeah. this is yeah. one thing at you know one thing a year. Like it's right <laughs> it, <laughs> now. But the hope is that you know. So here's the thing: with with the trivium system, well, with the threefold system in the U.S., we only have eleven certified judges that can mm. work under the threefold system, and three of them have no intention of ever judging. They're members of the USA Dance American for Gold Committee. A, a, mm-hmm. a federation, but they're chairs of other committees that are mm. not judging. They, they just wanted to know the system and want to understand it and have the certification, and, but n- never use it. So that leaves us with eight qualified mm. certified judges in the U.S. to judge at the national, regional, local level. That means we've got all these events coming up. I don't know how many, but not a lot of people to pick from. So there could be a lot of work for them and or the need to get more People certified. So there will be more congresses coming up. Like I said, should be coming in January, but I haven't heard. Uh, for the trivium system, we've only got three certified American judges. And one of those is also in the USA Dance Federation, has no intention of ever doing it, which leaves us two. So myself and a guy named Steve from Las Vegas, Knucklehead Zoo. And that's it. And, you know, that's international events like the World Championship and, of course, the Olympics. How do we get, is there a way to spark people's interest in getting certified to be able to do this? Or is it just, or is it still just early in the system before people find it? I think it's the latter. I think it's, you know, if people just aren't aware or aren't, or, or have unfortunate presumptions that are incorrect, like that it's going to be an Olympic style judging where there's going to be all these requirements and there's mm. nothing like that, not at all. It's, it's really no different. Honestly, the interface is different than anything we've had before, but the method of like what we're looking at and how we're judging is not different at all. It's still pretty subjective, but with an objective way of looking at all of the stats. And uh, the more judges we have, the more accurate it is. So, for mm-hmm. example, we're, we're typically used to having three, maybe five judges at an event, right? Max five. Right. But at the World Championships, we had nine that were judged the what? top eight. Yeah. We had 10 total, but that was five for the b-boy prelims and five for the b-girl prelims right and then one got to sit out and then we had nine judging the wow yeah because the more judges there are the more accurate yeah statistics you know and the more better everything becomes over time 
not just over mm-hmm. one event, over time. So it's going to be really interesting to see how these things all play out. I I could end up being the outlier that's not good at this, and that's that might happen. Uh, uh, the 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 numbers don't lie; they won't lie when when we can see them all over a period of multiple events and multiple years. Mm. Yeah. All righty. Looking forward to more world and break world and Olympic breaking information coming. Glad yeah. to have again with your with your legacy and your contributions to the breaking world. It would be dumb, even though it's a personal choice. But it would still be dumb if you didn't have some kind of hand in uh, executing this new march into the breaking community. Like it's just. That was a very long-winded way of saying it's dope that you're doing what you're doing. Whatever. Okay. So, <laughs> well, <thank you. laughs> so before we go, I have one more thing I want to do with you. My last name is Gamble. Got to play off of it. I bought a roulette table. And the roulette table is filled with 16 shot glasses. Oh, my goodness. And each shot glass is numbered. So it represents a number of questions that I... Whatever number lands on, you're going to be asked. Uh, oh, it's what? nothing. It's nothing shady or uh, dirt tastic or gossipy or anything like that. It's just fun questions to about your experiences and blah 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 blah. Are you game? Okay, why not? Uh, thank you. Awesome. So, what we're we gonna do? We have our little roulette ball. We spin that. We spin the magic roulette wheel. Roulette. Roulette wheel. And we see it lands on number six. Oh, I feel like number six has come up a lot. No. Maybe we haven't had this. This is finally. We're getting some new ones. Okay. Number six is something about dance people think they know but are completely wrong about or that you want to school them about. Come again? Repeat that. <laughs> uh-huh. It's a long one. Or think they know that they're completely wrong about or that you want to school them about. School them. I thought you said screw them about. <laughs> no, school them about. School. Ah, uh, something about dance that people are wrong about. The, I mean, uh, probably my biggest pet peeve about about dance. Uh, may, 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 may not answer your question directly, but but one of my biggest pet peeves is the way people see or perceive dancers as being at the bottom of the heap when it comes to pay in the industry like in your know, mm-hmm. industry you know like like a friend who's a you know like a choreography dancer that uh mm-hmm. you, he would also work out at this gym that i worked out at for a few years and we would talk about dance mostly about powerlifting like you like to power up also um and like he started taking acting classes and when he told the acting class instructor that he would answer then the the teachers went off on like how great it is that 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 dancers are so willing to work so hard for such little pay. And like, it made my friend's head want to explode and it made my head want to explode hearing that, hearing his, uh, you know, hearing his recollection of that. And that's, that's the way that we're perceived. And yeah, we like to work hard because we love what we do and it's fun and it keeps us healthy, but like. Pay me what you owe me. It's your, it's an investment in your craft, like any other one of these. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, It's just, you know, like there's this, there's this perception that we're always willing to work really hard for not enough money. Mm-hmm. And it's not at all accurate, you know, like. You'll get exposure. 
Yeah, it's the most common thing. One of the most common things that we hear. But, you know, like this was a big fight that I had with the guy that ran that circus company that mm -hmm. danced with for a few years, where the dance rate was a lot lower than the acrobat rate, right? And I was like, but mm -hmm. we're literally doing acrobatics all over the stage, and we're doing all of the, the interlude parts between the main acts, and we have an act. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, 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 this whole thing where, where like, I, I really fought on behalf of my company to get equal pay with the acrobat. Mm -hmm. I had to convince them that we were equal to them in stature, in skill, and mm -hmm. in validity, in legitimacy, because they just saw themselves as superior, obviously. It was just self-evident to them without any further examination of the underlying facts thereof. Right. And then we proved that we were just skilled, if not more so than many of them, by being able to dance as well as you, do all of the acrobatic moves on the floor that we do, and do their acts as well as, if not better than them. Right. Try to pull like straps. I, you know, dude, worked on the straps act for years. I picked it up in months and did it better. So I'm trying to pull. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right. Yeah, it, it, it's a real pet peeve, and it, it isn't, a, it isn't a, a, a perception that people have of dancers that is very unfortunate. Uh, and I think it will always be this way because uh, that's just kind of the way of the world. When you think about labor, this touches on a whole mm -hmm. other thing, but like if you think about labor, it's the people that do the least labor that make the most money. Yep. Uh, is that wrong or right? It depends, right? It Right. From a labor perspective, from a return on effort perspective, definitely the, the people that, like, this is why we have unions, you know, and this is, mm -hmm. uh, but from the other perspective, you know, like Elon Musk, controversial as he is, had a, a point when he said that you are paid in proportion to the difficulty of the problems that you're able to solve, or some mm -hmm. paraphrase of that. Yeah. Right. So as dancers, we work really hard, but we don't solve a problem. You know what I mean? The choreographer not, solves the problem. Depends. Depends. I'm making it depends, a generalization, which is not always accurate. But yeah. But the the, the reason the reason why I'm quote unquote fighting against that we don't problem solve because once we're at a gig, we're just like, well, you can do another. Like, okay, so can you do another number since you're already here? And it's like, no. Because yeah. that another number costs more money that you're not willing to, but you're already here. So and it's and yeah. and that's what I mean. So you most people that are producing have an issue that they want us to solve, but don't want us to pay us to solve their problem because then yeah. and, sure. and that's what I'm like, it's yeah. ooh, because so many times and it, it goes, it's the I just had I just had this conversation a couple hours a couple hours ago with a friend here in Sweden that it's where you're just expected as a dancer just to put your craft on stage because that's what you want to do mm -hmm. but they don't want to pay you for it and it's like yeah. but the musicians the musicians get paid and if it goes a minute over time they're just like i'm done well until you pay me yeah. i'm not picking it back up it's and like we as dancers it's like okay so the musicians are done but you guys can keep practicing it's like but we literally need them because we're performing yeah. with, so why are we still yeah, keep? Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. there's just a. I, I I thank you for saying this. It it wasn't directly related to my intention of it, but this is a very great point 
because a lot of times uh, in general, uh, I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure this happened too. It's like, oh, so you're a dancer. Have you done something that I've seen? Like that's the only value that someone places, like how big of a project you've done versus also what do you do to, what do you do to make money then if you're a dancer? It's like, I, 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 I dance. Yeah. Yeah. But, and then if, then if someone's like an actor, it's along the same lines, but acting again is much more accepted that you have this uh, spectrum of how much work you do as an actor, but as a dancer, either you're, you're a big time dancer doing a bunch of stuff, making not even a lot of money, but what people consider to be a lot of money, or you're just doing it as a hobby and you need to get a real job. Yeah. It's annoying. Yeah. yeah. I know. But that is a pet peeve of yours, pet peeve of mine, and something that people do need to be schooled on about. Yeah. Pay your fucking dancers what they need to be paid worth. Yeah. Just and, saying. Yeah. That, that and, and uh, you know, like a perception I'm trying to change is, is the age element of that. Right? Yeah. Because... You know, case in point, I went to, uh, in the middle of the pandemic in December mm-hmm. last year, I went to Portugal and I had mm-hmm. to fly to the uh, Frankfurt airport in Germany and I had to go through customs in Frankfurt. And, you know, like you look at me and I've got this gray beard and, you know, even mm-hmm. with the mask on, you can see the gray beard underneath it, mm-hmm. you can see the wrinkles in my eyes and whatever. And, uh, <laughs> right? So I'm talking to the customs agent who wants to know why I'm traveling at this god awful time, right? Nobody's nobody wants to, or should be traveling in a pandemic, but there I was mm. going to Portugal because we had to we had opportunity to make something happen. So we did it. And um, I, I get there and I tell them I'm going to a dance event, which I am, you know, performing for some something or other. And um, mm. and the dude, like normally that's not a big deal. It had it been a big deal prior to the pandemic, maybe my hair has gotten grayer in the pandemic. I've been through a lot, but um, he didn't believe that I was a dancer. And so he's like, you're, you're going to what now? And I'm like, yeah, coming to a dance event. He's like, well, what do you do? What do you do? For-? And I said, oh, I told him, like, I'm in real estate. Like, that, that is how I make, make more money doing than I do dancing now. Um, and he gave me the longest stare. The longest <laughs> me kind of stare. Like, and I was like, dude, seriously, like, I'm a dancer. You want me to show you a you know, whatever. I brought up my phone and I pulled up a clip of availability because that's what we were doing. That's who I was going yeah. with. Uh, a clip of all of us, right? And I'm in the clip, lazy legs, all the, all the others are in the clip. And I show him, and he's like, oh, great dance. Can you show us some moves? <laughs> oh, that's the other shit. Just like well, I literally did. I, I was I was just so happy that they were actually gonna let me through because I really thought they were gonna <laughs> send me right back home and they would have been very right. by that in the pandemic. Uh, but I was very happy to I was ne- never happier of my elbow than I was that day. <laughs> <laughs> so they they loved it. They stamped my thing and sent me right on through, and it was great. And I got a good story out of it. But uh, but it, it, they said as they stamped my passport, like that it's it's amazing that you can still do this at your age. Fuck off! Sorry, just that just, just uh, ah yeah. Because yeah. I because I still get I still get that question as well. So how much longer do you think you can do this? And I'm like. Do you see any limitations to my physicality right now? Is there yeah. no 
but like not like you because like you're different but like someone else like your age i'm like okay so again i'm still the same age as this other person so what is your issue with this age of someone being able to do something like this and i'm like i'm gonna do this until i die like that is literally my plan maybe something will happen where i have to go back into something else or go with one but but in my head i'm going to continue to move until yeah. I die, because that's like that's my body. So right. how? Oh, it's just yeah. so. It's just it, so. It, 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 it's an unfortunate and uh, incorrect preconceived notion that people have of dancers and especially Asian mm-hmm. dancers. But it is also they don't know any better, and so right. it is the definition of intelligence to reference other information that you've gathered previously to compare your current information to or against. Right. And then understand how they compare and contrast. That's how intelligence works. So in actual objective fact, they're asking an intelligent question when they <laughs> when they tell us these things that are not exactly very considerate. Right. But you know, they they know that they'd be corrected. That they, they, they it, it's the exception to the rule at this time for these people, but it may not be that way for long especially if people like you and i keep going uh, you know I'm, I'm 45 now and i don't mm. foresee myself stopping this anytime soon anytime soon yeah yeah all right so how can people that are listening uh follow the crazy antics of crazy cujo <laughs> is it uh, i'm on i'm on instagram and Facebook. I do not have a TikTok. I will not get one. <laughs> <laughs> Join the club. I'm there. Um, uh, at, What's your... yeah, I'm at Crazy Cujo on both Instagram and Facebook. At Crazy Cujo. K-R-A-Z-Y-K-U-J-O. That's it. Cool. At Crazy Cujo at, on Instagram and at Crazy Cujo on uh, Facebook. Uh, ooh. Uh, where can people find out more information or find out or see more things about uh, world championships of breaking? Aha. Aha. Um, that, for the time being, that's primarily going to be on social media. So if you can look to, uh, uh, on Instagram, it's at Breaking for Gold USA. I think it's the same on Facebook. That's the American mm-hmm. one. Um, also, the World Dance, so WDSF. What is their actual handle? Uh, I think if you search WDSF, you'll find World Dance Sport Federation. Plus, you know, come up will be the actual thing. Yeah, the World Dance. Look up World Dance Sport Federation. You have a you have a device in your hand. Use it. Stop yeah, waiting for people to give you information. WDSF Dance Sport. So it's a bit redundant, but that is uh, their Instagram handle. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, and then um, underscore breaking for gold. That is the international movement for breaking getting into the olympics that's under the okay under the ioc umbrella the world Transport federation so, yep. so there are three right breaking for gold usa it's not the same as underscore breaking for gold one mm-hmm. is national one is international and wdsf dance sport is the whole thing which includes the ballroom competitive side of things that we're probably not as interested in um but yeah that's that's how as of now things will uh be turned out uh I, i'm sure that there are official websites for every like you can google any of those i'm sure there's a website but i mm-hmm. haven't actually 
looked at those. I haven't, I haven't needed to other than, but I've only looked at the WTSF website just because I had to register my, you know, I had to make an account on that. And yeah. And else will have to do that if they want to be part of this endeavor. If they are B boys and B girls that want to either compete or judge or coach or host or MC or DJ at mm. one of these things, I'll have to become members of a federation, which is a new thing in hip hop. You have to pay to play which is normal in sports and not normal in breaking and hip-hop games. It's always been free unless you're taking a class or a workshop. Uh, But now we have to pay to play. It's normal in other sports. Like if if you play soccer competitively, you are part of a federation that you pay an annual fee Mm -hmm. to. That's the way it goes, right? So that's the way it's going to be for this specific endeavor. And again, this endeavor to, not to beat a dead horse, but this endeavor is not replacing everything else that has ever happened with breaking or ever will happen with breaking. There's just one. No, no, no. But that's what people don't quite understand. They think that once breaking becomes an Olympic sport, it's going to kill the culture and everything is going to disappear. That's absolutely not the case. I think exactly the opposite. I think that the cultural will flourish as a reaction to and, competitive uh, flourishing. And for it to flourish as well, you have to invest in the federation so that you can grow the culture. Yeah. It's, yeah, an, it's, an, it's an investment in the culture. Yeah. I think both branches the, are, are, are going to grow tremendously. Yeah. Cool. So we got uh, at crazy Cujo to follow uh, Mr. Crazy Cujo on Instagram, crazy Cujo on Facebook. We have at breaking for gold for the U S federation. We have underscore breaking for gold, the international, and we have WDSF dance sport uh for the overall and then make sure if you're not doing already that you follow at gambles green room on instagram to stay up to date of all of my guests some of the background uh behind the scenes and as i said that special clip of kujo going to be coming out of him dancing and hitting these beats while not hearing any single one of them and make (laughs) sure you stay tuned to gambles green room because merch is soon out hoodies uh, tote bags coffee mugs it's going to be great and if you're not doing it yet make sure you like and subscribe while you're listening to stay up to date of every episode release of gamble's green room had to say that a little slower i'm your host mike gamble bringing you the people you need to know with the stories you want to hear thank you to my brother mr jacob crazy cujo lions being here with me today bro so happy to like have done this with you. So happy to have had our time together in Malmo as well. It's been years since we've seen each other, but it's like a day hasn't passed. It's so great. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me once again. Thanks, brother. We'll do this again soon. Okay. Yay, yay. <laughs> <laughs>